The Linux Action Show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan and DigitalOcean. Go over to digitalocean.com and use our promo code LASTDIGITAL and then you can spin up your own Linux rig for free. Welcome to Linux Action Show episode 390. My name is Chris. My name is Noah. Hey there, Noah. Huge show coming up on today's episode of the Linux Action Show. We're going to review Fedora 23. Here's the thing. This is the release that changes everything. I'm not even kidding. At least for the server version, I'll tell you why. Plus, the workstation release is pretty compelling, too. We'll give you our thoughts on Fedora 23. And then in the news segment, Linus is under attack this week. And we're going to talk specifically about the security community that appears to be going after Linus and wants a changing culture. Red Hat is now running great on Azure, but that's not the interesting bit. The devil is in the details, and we'll give them to you coming up a little bit later in the show. And then Ubuntu is finally killing the software center. We'll tell you the details about that. A new version of Mate is out. And KDBus, do you know what that is? Well, guess what? It's not dead yet. Plus the new SystemD conference. Brand new conference is out, and we'll tell you a little bit of info about that and some of the new things coming to SystemD we've learned from the horse's mouth directly. Plus, after that, we've got feedback. But before all of that, Noah, do you know what we've got? It's time for the picks. It's time for the picks, Noah. Uh, I absolutely, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, our picks this week are great. Our runs Linux might be in my top five favorites ever. Might be in my top five. Uh, not only is it right here in my backyard in a beautiful place in the Pacific Northwest, but it is also something that I tried to do as a small business while I was still in high school, only actually done correctly. And last but not least, it's all controlled and managed using Linux. That's right. It is a group of neighbors who have created their own Internet service that runs Linux, powered by radios and trees, homegrown network servers. There's 50 houses on Orcas Island that are using this wireless ISP. This is the perfect runs Linux coming right after our episode last week, Noah. This is a great find, and uh, they have a video up. This is probably going to get last flagged on YouTube. That happens all the time now. Uh, but they have a little Linux in here, and I'm going to play it for you. Are you ready, Noah? I'm ready. All right, brace yourself. So watch closely. And if you see, and by the way, Noah, uh, I think, too, for a double dose, if you watch closely, I think it's a System76 laptop. Really? Networks and computers and stuff like that. So I already knew basic routing and things like that, but it was really a grow as there you go, go right thing. There you, see it? you learn what to mm -hmm. do, what not to do, and eventually you get a model that works, and then you replicate it out. And there's actually several shots. So that's Nagios running on a Linux server, then they're showing how they manage it from a shed uh, on, an, on a uh, Ubuntu laptop, and I think it's actually a System76 rig. Here's another shot uh, where they've got a, there's the other shot of the system 76 rig again, running Ubuntu. The whole video is absolutely fascinating. And, uh, they use, uh, like, um, open street maps to do some of the mapping. So what is, what this is, is an entire community who got fed up of crappy commercial internet service and said, well, that's it. Let's do it ourselves. And so with some, uh, with the help of some really, uh, ingenuitive people, uh, they created their own wireless mesh network. And uh, just recently, they've hooked up some serious bandwidth to it, like a 100 gigabits connection as of just a few days ago. Uh, and it is a rockin', self-created internet connection. I am impressed by this, Noah. You should do something like this in Grand Forks. I would love to, except I have some serious concerns about the scalability of, of mesh networks, right? Because mesh networks are traditionally a, a, a very inefficient way to, to utilize radio spectrum. So 
it works, you know, to a certain point. But I have a feeling if you tried to grow it past a certain point, it would just collapse on itself. I think it's and, I think it's mesh in the sense uh, loosely in the term. So I don't think it's node to node, for example, uh, okay. for transfer. I think it's mesh in the sense that it's like spoken hub, spoken hub, spoken hub. Oh, okay. Uh, and I don't know. And that works. That would work. So I'm showing a, a graphic of it uh, of it right here. I don't know if you can see that, but you see how they mm -hmm. do have like community. They have primarily what they have is major community access points. Uh, and okay. individual blocks going back to central points, then coming back to a central point. You see how they kind of have it laid out here. Yeah. You're... So, so basically, kind of uh, tying uh, episodes in together. Basically, kind of what yes. they're doing is yes. is what we covered last week. They essentially yeah. have a wisp, except the wisp doesn't necessarily tie into a, a backbone. It's no. a, everyone can participate in the construction and the success of the wisp. And what's great, Noah, what is freaking great is the two techno a bunch of technologies are converging at the same time. So you got you got Linux machines that are powering the systems, and then you've got drones, and they're connecting uh, wireless. And so at first, they just sent the drones up with cameras, and we're like, yeah, we have line of sight from this tree to that tree, or from this tree to the water tower. Because, you know, one of the great things about Washington is we've got these big, tall trees, right? And mm -hmm. they're just these mo monsters that you can just stick antennas on the top of and make them lightning poles, basically. Uh, so they, at first, they sent up the drones, and they would just take pictures. Now they're sending up these Linux running drones with with wireless antennas on them and they're sending the drones up and seeing if they actually get connectivity and doing speed tests to determine if yeah we should put a we should put an antenna there or not. So they're actually intelligently deploying the antennas before they ever even climb the tree. That's awesome. Yeah. You know the, you know you know the other thing that gives me a lot of hope about this Chris is that we have seen time and time again where the government wants to step in and say we're going to restrict the internet and we're we're going to restrict this or that part of the internet and so far We've managed to keep the internet mostly free, but if we ever hit a point where that's no longer the case, we don't have a lot of recourse at this point. And projects like this give us recourse. If we get to a point where we say, "Well, we don't, we don't care about your internet. We will just the the people that care will move essentially to a kind of off grid internet where I put up my own radio." Uh, I put up my own antenna, my own transceiver, and now I can connect into this network of other people. And there, and there is no central authority to to shut down. There is no central authority to take control of. Sure, you can take control of one of those community access points, but we'll just set another one up. I you love know, it. That that is that's a really cool thing. That's a really cool position if, to be in. If I could have it my way, if there was a way to financially make it possible, if there was a way time wise to make it possible, because it's right here in our backyard, I'd love to take the rover over there and talk to them about what they're doing. And then literally do a broadcast from their connectivity. Mm -hmm. Park the rover over there, connect to their network, do a show about how they're using Linux, how they have it all connected, how it all got started, and broadcast from there. I think it would be absolutely amazing. I'm going to put we that on the bucket it. list. Mm -hmm. We'll see what happens. I'm in. I'm in. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes and also the company behind it. It is pretty cool. And uh, it's funny because that's exactly what I tried to do years and years and years ago. But uh, the wireless system just wasn't ready yet. And it is really neat. And now, now there's so much cool stuff to be able to do it. Like being able to use the drones to suss out if you have mm -hmm. a good connection. We were just, you know, back in the day when I was experimenting with it, it was, it was just total like, well, I think this is kind of it. I think this is kind of lined up. And uh, you would uh, just kind of be out of luck. So it's kind of impressive. And it's all powered by the Linux. Hey, I'll tell you about something else all powered by Linux. That's our sponsor, DigitalOcean. Go over to DigitalOcean and use the promo code LASTDIGITAL. LAS Digital, all one word, lowercase like a boost. And you use that over at digitalocean.com to get a $10 credit. That way you can try out their $5 rig. Yeah, I said $5 rig for two months for absolutely free. So a $5 rig, yeah, $5. You get, get ready for this. You ready? I want you to stand by. You're out, because, okay, let's think about this. 
You got your hamburgers. You know, uh, I don't know if you know this, Noah, but McDonald's mm-hmm. now has a deluxe version of the Quarter Pounder. It's got like uh, like lettuce Wouldn't on that... there and like serious oh. tomato on there. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to say they add more beef, to which my question was going to be, wouldn't that be a half pounder? But boom, boom. No, it's like a serious version of the Quarter Pounder. It's good if you're going to get McDonald's. Otherwise, it's disgusting. But if you like McDonald's, it's good. Now, here's the thing, Noah. That's like seven bucks when you're all said and done. Eight bucks. You know what? That's for one burger from McDonald's. You go over to DigitalOcean.com, you can get a $5 rig for the entire month. 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. You use the promo code LASTDIGITAL, you get $10 credit. You can try that $5 rig two months for free. You guys, it's math. I love it. And they have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany, and a brand new one up in Toronto. They're like, hey, you know what? We want to be closer to Alan Jude. We love Alan Jude. Oh, also the NSA. So they set up a data center up in Toronto. It's a pretty good idea. But let's talk about their interface. Man, is this? So uh, you're going to hear about this more later in the review today, but I have a Fedora droplet up on DigitalOcean. I love this. So when you do an upgrade from Fedora 22 to Fedora 23, some of that process happens on the console and it closes your SSH connection. DigitalOcean has an HTML5 console that you go to in any web browser you want to use, and it comes up perfectly, and then right below it, it gives you, I mean, this is so brilliant, it gives you, uh, like, in, like, a, in, like a, a table below the uh, embedded HTML5 console, it gives you the IP address of the droplet, the subnet mask, the, the default gateway, like, all of the essential information you need to know as you're setting up that machine, it is genius. I love the DigitalOcean interface, and they managed to make taking backups, changing DNS settings, deploying one-click applications in Docker containers, de- moving between data centers, all of that, they manage to somehow, setting up private networking, is, which is great, it, they make it very intuitive without a complicated interface. That's their secret sauce. Use the promo code LASTDIGITAL. Try it out. And yeah, they have Fedora 23. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code LASTDIGITAL. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Action Show and also... Tip of the hat, you guys, on whipping it out on Fedora 23. You whip it out mm-hmm. faster than Noah does at Linux Fest. Uh, I'm sorry. Also, by the way, uh, they have a great tutorial, how to install LAMP on Fedora 22, which will also work on 23 up at DigitalOcean.com. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code LASTDIGITAL. So speaking of whipping it out, uh, I whipped out Fedora 23. The way I actually tested cockpit was on DigitalOcean this week. Yeah, me too. We're going to talk yeah. about that. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. But first, desktop app picks. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Chris has a rule about the desktop app pick. It must be open source unless it is crazy good, and it must be free unless it's outrageously great. And today, today, and it has been maybe a year since I have done a proprietary pay-for application in the desktop app pick on the Linux Action Show. Maybe it's been more than a year since I've done one, but today... Today I am doing one because the little boy in me is so, so, so excited about Trine 3. So Trine 2 is one of the best video games ever created and runs on Linux. Trine 3 is the next version of one of the best video games ever created. And to this, and today, well, really yesterday, this week, you could say, perhaps, it came out as beta for Linux and is on sale for like a crazy amount right now. On Steam, we got it linked up. It's 50% off. I'm going to play just a little bit of the trailer, or the teaser, as they call it.
So one of the things that's changed in Shrine 3 is it's not just a 2D platformer. There's now depth to it, uh, which is which is integrated in actually kind of a really confident way. The way the game uses depth uh, is like it, it doesn't care about camera clips sometimes, but in a way that it shows that they thought about this. Uh, it, it does it in a very kind of confident kind of way that feels natural to the gameplay, and you can move in and out of the different elements. It looks really nice. It plays really great, and I am told, although I don't have it tried, I haven't tried it yet. Out of the box Steam controller support, and uh, it's 50% off this weekend, and I think for a couple of days afterwards. It's a really great game. And if you're one of those people who want something really great under Linux, but you don't want to shoot people in the face, you don't want to look at zombies that are bleeding out of the mouth, and, you know, you don't want to fly 360 degrees in the air, uh, and you don't feel like racing the sun, this is a really great game because it's gorgeous. I mean, it is gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. It works under Linux, and uh, it's a really good price right now. It is in beta, but I, I, can't, I can't stress how gorgeous it is. I played it for a little bit. Uh, in the uh, pre-show, and uh, it is really a, it is a nice-looking game. And the first the first two games were so great. This is a little bit of a departure uh, on how the first two are set up, but it's so far what I've played, I liked it quite a bit. So you can get it fifty percent off in Steam. Do you have to think any less than the first one? Because that that was my <laughs> that was my big problem: not being a gamer and not being dedicated to mm -hmm. gamer culture. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. I didn't want to think. And the nice thing about Race the Sun is I just push arrows and then crash it's, and I start it's over. Not as, it is not as brainless as Race the Sun. Well, here's how I, in my limited experience of trying three, it's mindless, mindless, mindless. Oh geez, puzzle, think, think, think. And it, for me, because it goes from not thinking to thinking, it takes me a little bit longer than it should. But within about mm -hmm. thirty seconds, I go, oh yeah, obviously, okay, it's this. And then I got it done, and then it's no thinking, no thinking, think, think, think. So it's like a little bit more thinking, but not much. And and what it really does, Noah, and I think you will, I, Noah, you should get this game for one reason only. I'm firing up Steam as we speak. If you ever having a conversation with somebody like, what are games like under Linux? Show them this game. It's so gorgeous. Really? It's so beautiful. It's a demo. It's a demo-worthy game. So it okay. is a, if you're trying to plug gaming on Linux, and also... At least with trying to, I don't know about trying three because it is way more 3D, but with trying two, you could have a range of decent experience between an Intel card and a dedicated card. And if you had even a recent decent dedicated card, you could really, really push it. So on this Bonobo here, you know, man, this Bonobo is what, three years old? I don't even freaking yeah. know, two and a half years old. It's got like a 600 series uh, GTX NVIDIA in it. Uh, you know, I'd turn on the anti-aliasing, 1080p, you know, full screen, uh, best quality, uh, and it still looks great. So it's a it's a beautiful game. It really shows off uh, uh, Linux gaming and works great with like, a Steam controller. So it's fun that way, too. Okay, no, we had an open source project we wanted to spotlight this week. Now, we're talking about Fedora, and one of the things that I've noticed in our community, and it's crossed my mind, too, when it comes to Fedora, a lot of times people are like, well, Fedora is great, but... Why wouldn't you just use Arch? Well, uh, some people have chose to just use Arch, and so we thought, well, kind of to ride the controversy a little bit while we're doing a review of Fedora 23, let's plug Architect Linux. It's a live installer for Arch Linux. Arch. Yeah. What do you think about this, Noah? Did you get a chance to take a look at it? I, I did. It, <clears throat> so the number one thing that has turned me off to Arch, or used to turn me off to Arch, Arch. rather, I keep finding around that there are things that that, that substitute this, but um, is the uh, the the problem of installing. The first time I installed Arch, I think it took me two hours um, to go through, follow the guide, get everything set up the way I wanted it. Um, and that was fun for a one-time project, but I'm not using that as my daily driver because 
let's face it, if I screw something up and I need to get some work done, oftentimes the answer is I'll just reload the machine. And if it's going to take me two hours to do that, that's not really an option. So Architect Linux, which is a successor to Evo or or um, or, or Lucent Linux, uh, provides a, a powerful user-friendly and flexible installer for Arch. Um, and so basically it connects to the internet and uses a framework that downloads uh, the packages and then um, builds an up-to-date system. And that's cool. And yeah. and, I, and the, the, the thing is, is it's tools like this. I don't have a really great answer of what makes this a lot better than Andragos. Um, but the, I, I like the fact that uh, I like the fact that I have another option and I like the fact that it is essentially just an installer for Arch. Yes. And, and, and I guess, you know, it obviously wouldn't have the Andragos repos added and the Andragos right. keys and things like that added, which, you know, uh, it could be good. You know, if you're, if you're a security purist, maybe you don't like the idea of, Installing Andergross and having their repo keys added to your system by default. Maybe that makes you uncomfortable. So this this avoids that. Architect, mm-hmm. Arch Linux installer. Go check it out. And uh, we'll have links in the show notes. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. And uh, you can go to uh, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash last picks for all the previous picks. Hey, Noah, I just want to make a mention. You and I really have no idea what our schedule is going to be like while we're in Colorado next week. But right. here's what we do know at this point. Uh, we will probably be live Thursday over at jblive.tv showing off some of the party going on at System76. They've got new rigs they're going to be showing off. They're going to be just throwing a shindig that we'll be live streaming. And that'll be Thursday. Uh, we're talking November, doot, 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 bringing it up, November 12th. Don't know exactly what the time will be yet, so go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar for that. And mm-hmm. then Friday, November 13th, so that's the next Linux Action Show, episode 391, we will be live from System76 in Denver, Colorado at our mm-hmm. regular 3 p.m. Pacific time, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted to your time. We would love to have you show up. You can show up during Thursday for the live stream. We'll have the chat room going. We'll be streaming under Linux from System76 headquarters on Thursday and Friday doing the show. So a lot of stuff going on next week. We'd love to have you guys join us. We do not know yet what our meetup situation is. Maybe Wednesday night when we get in after we say hi to the System76 folks, maybe we could do a meetup. We don't know because we're going there, we're working, and then we're flying out Friday. But let us know, meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. I did start a thread over there in the discussion section, and uh, I asked if people would be interested. Because I know here's basically what I'm thinking, Noah, is what my thought mm-hmm. is. And I've just, you know, I, hey, hey, Noah, hey, real quick, Le- Noah. Lay, lay, can you, uh, lay down hey, for me so can I can, you come pick in? Up can we have a hey, let's stop the show. Can we have a production meeting real okay. quick? All right, production all right, meeting. Right, okay. yeah. real close. Uh, right. What do you think about just like playing it by ear Wednesday night and just like having a meetup? And uh, oh. if we feel up for it and people are around, we just like announce it on the meetup page Wednesday. You know, I think that's a great idea. Just don't tell the live stream because uh-huh. then you then people would get in on the secret. You yeah. know, let's just yeah. keep it on the DL yeah. for a little bit. And then you know Wednesday what I'll do? Night, we'll you know, I just you know what people who are following us on the meetup page and me on Twitter. They'll be the ones that'll know. They'll be the insiders. Okay. Here we go. Okay. Just, so anyway, okay, back, okay, to right, right. back to the show. Back to the back show. To the okay. show. Yeah. Okay. So uh, meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. We might be doing something. Uh, we'll let you guys know, but we don't have anything officially planned yet. But we are super excited next week to be doing the show from Denver, Colorado. I've always wanted to go. This will be my first time. And uh, if you uh, are uh, curious about how the journey goes and, and my perspective of it, I'll probably do a rover log from there, too. You can find those at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover. But no, with the picks all done, let's do the news. Hey, it's the 
news, and this episode is brought to you by... Ting.com. You know that. Ting's been my mobile service provider for over two years. Noah's mobile service provider, too. We're crazy like that. Here's why we love Ting, and it's kind of changing up the game, too. You might want to check them out. No contract, no other termination fee, and you only pay for what you use. It's a flat $6 for the line, and then it's just your usage on top of that. I was telling Noah uh, before the show started, I Noah, I had my most expensive Ting bill ever. And he's like, mm-hmm. oh, really? Like, how much was it? And I was like, hey, how much did you think I was going to say, I, Noah? I was thinking three or $400. <laughs> oh, geez, well, you know, dude. here's the thing. Here's the thing. My old my old wireless bill, if nothing went wrong and I had no overages and nothing bad happened, was 160 bucks. Yeah, I know. So, I know. So, I know. Well, so I, was, so I was thinking, I was like, so if it's a little bit more than that, like at a bare threshold, it'd be 200 Yeah. But realistically, like a high bill, like something that I'm sweating, like you were sweating, I'd be like, oh, 300 So uh, if, you have a, if you have a cellular bill right now, go to last.ting.com. You got to go to last.ting.com to uh, save money, but also to support the show. You got to get $25 credit or 25 bucks off a device. But use their savings calculator and put your bill in there like Noah's just saying. You know, put, put what you use in there, like the minutes and the messages and the megabytes, and then what you pay before taxes and run their calculator. I save over $2,000 uh, in two years. Uh, and it's great because I can, you know, I can switch anytime I want. They got GSM and CDMA, so I can pick between that. But no, uh, here's how much I paid. It was, it was one of my most expensive ting bills of all times. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, brace yourselves because this was with three phones. Uh, and I actually expected it to be a little bit lower because Rikai broke his phone. <laughs> so I thought, I thought if anything, the the bill would be a little bit lower this month. But no, because uh, one of our friends of the family, uh, she she's actually in labor right now as we're recording the show, and so she's been like in the final stages of being pregnant for for this month, and has been on the phone constantly, calling people, messaging people, looking stuff up online. So our bill has just been creeping up and up all month long. And so even though Rikai's phone shut down like a week ago, I thought I it just I had no idea. So ladies and gentlemen, here it is. Strikingly, my bill is the highest it's ever been in like two years. It is $60. That's right. That's you right. poor thing. <laughs> a whole $60. Yeah, I know. A whole $60. That's half of what my ordinary cell phone bill and was. And it's super easy. You log into the Ting control panel, which is totally epic and awesome, and it totally lays out like, oh, yeah, it was Jenny's phone. Yeah, okay. Well, that makes sense. She is having a baby, so that makes sense. Last.ting.com. Go there. Save money. No contract. They got great phones you can buy. Feature phones all the way up to the highest end phones are just the SIM cards. Also, they got great blog posts. Like, I love this cord cutting series they're doing. That's right up my alley. How to watch sports after you cancel cable. What's up? But, uh, Noah, you got yourself a new device on the Ting Network this week, didn't you? You I, I, son I of did. a gun. I, I, I did. <laughs> so, Chris and I were talking right before the show. We were talking about how uh, how Chris is uh, trying to accommodate his internet things, and, and I, I continually purchase hotspots. But the, the thing is, is when I'm not paying a monthly fee for them because I can just activate them and deactivate them. And now with the beauty of GSM, I have just a couple SIM cards that are active and I just kind of rotate them around in devices that I want to play with. My latest thing has been I found out you can buy a wireless WAN card for your laptop that runs on GSM. Oh, baby. Yeah, so you put the SIM card in the slot and then you put the little WAN card inside of the computer and you get GSM internet. Full disclosure, I currently I'm only able to connect uh, to 3G and apparently there is I have to add um, I have to change some of the APN settings somehow. And uh, the I, I got I opened up the email thing and I was going to do the chat, but I ran out of time, so I wasn't able to do it. So I'm sure once Ting uh, helps me get those settings plugged in correctly, then it will work on LTE. Are, are you telling me are you telling me you got you got a GSM or a, a CDMA SIM from Ting 
You put it in this card that's in your laptop, and now your laptop has built-in connectivity? It, it, the idea will be, when I get it working correctly, that my laptop just has a persistent connection to the internet. Oh yes. my god, oh my god, yeah. this is great. Last.ting.com, because here's what's awesome about that. He's only paying for what he uses. So, you know, you use Wi-Fi as much as you can, and then when you need that to check your email or do Telegram, then you just pay for when you use it. No contract, no 60, 70, 80 bucks a month, anything like that. That's awesome, Noah. Let me know how that goes. I love it. Go to yeah, last.ting.com. Go check them out and support the show. You can just support the show by checking them out, last.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring Linux Action Show. And Noah, do you happen to know off the top of your head the model number of the... Of the- yeah, I do. I do, I, because, I, because I ordered it off of Amazon. And I will, I'll find it for you, and I'll get yeah, back to you. because I would be really curious, because I bet there's other people out there that would like to do that. So if you do have that, uh, maybe, we'll, maybe we pop it in the show notes or something like that. So uh, there's a lot of ways we could take this story this week, and some that I think are extremely disturbing and uh, very, very, very concerning. And I'm talking about the attack of Linus Torvalds this week. Uh, pretty much straight up, he seems to be under attack by a lot of different uh, interest groups. And uh, the one that seems to be really, really bothering me now is the attack by the security group, the security elitists. I don't know what you want to call them. The the black and white uh, security professionals out there that see the world as binary, uh, that are going after Linus and trying to um, create a narrative that Linux becomes so critical in the world's infrastructure that we can't afford to have Linus Torvalds at the helm. It's too risky. It's too <sighs> dangerous. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways that we could actually cover this, but I want to talk about this story from the Washington Post. Which, uh, if you're watching the video version, I uh, I actually have printed out right here. I, I printed out a few sections of it that that really got me going because uh, this really upset me. But they have a lengthy Linus Torvalds assassination piece uh, that they posted. Uh, they say while Linux is fast, flexible, and free, a growing chorus of critics warn that its security weaknesses that could be fixed but haven't been. Worse, as internet security has been has surged as a subject of international concern, Torvalds has engaged in an occasionally profane standoff with experts on the subject. Uh, the broader messages, uh, so uh, uh, here, Lioness has a broad message, and I don't really, I, you know, I'm just going to pull up this Washington Post article. I didn't want to give, I didn't even want to give them the traffic because it's so clickbaity. But I did go through, I did go through and annotate the entire article. Uh, and this is this. There is such a bias in this author's voice. Uh, here's the first paragraph I highlighted. This is Linus Torvalds. They're talking about, and they're talking about one of the best operating systems on the planet. And this is this is the first paragraph I highlight. Linus doesn't take ser- security seriously. It's yet another concern in his mind, and he surrounded himself with people who share those views. That's according to Daniel McKay, a Toronto-based security researcher whose company. Copperhead is developing a hardened version of the Android mobile operating system, which is based on Linux. He says, there are a lot of kernel developers who don't really care about security. But they're not the ones making the calls. The rift between Torvalds and security experts is a particular source of worry for those who see Linux becoming the dominant operating system. Now, they go on with this kind of talk for the entire article. Uh, they and of course constantly and consistently referencing any time Linus is blown up about anybody about anything on the internet as justification for him being impossible to work with. And then the article from a meta level writes about an interview that somebody else conducted with Linus. This is on the Washington Post. They say 
Over several hours of conversation, Torvalds, 45, disputed suggestions that security is not important to him or to Linux, but he acknowledged at being at odds with some security experts. His broader message was this. Security of any system can never be perfect, so it always must be weighed against other priorities, such as speed, flexibility, and ease of use, in a series of inherently nuanced trade-offs. This is a process, Torvald suggested, and it's poorly understood by critics. He said, this is a quote from Linus, The people who care most about this stuff are completely crazy. They are very black and white, he said, speaking with a slight Nordic accent from his native Finland. Security itself is useless. The upside is always somewhere else. The security is never the thing that you really care about. And this is what people are really attacking him about for saying the people who think about this are black and white and crazy. They're really going after for him, this for this. And then the, the author of the Washington Post article talks about how, what about a nuclear disaster where the stakes are high and operating system kernels are the most essential code on any computer, allowing hardware to work smoothly with multiple pieces of software. This makes kernels uniquely powerful. They can override the safeguards in any other program, meaning nothing on a computer is truly secure if the operating system's kernel is not. Now, consider this. The Linux kernel runs on the New York Stock Exchange, every Android smartphone, and nearly all of the world's supercomputers. Much of the rapidly expanding universe of connected devices uses Linux, as do many of the world's biggest companies, including Google, Facebook, and Amazon.com. The tech-heavy U.S. economy, many argue, also depends on the smooth functioning of Linux. Even more broadly, the battle over Linux security is a fight over the future of the online world at a time when the leading computer scientists are debating where the internet is so broken it needs to be completely replaced. The network is expanding faster than ever, layering flaw upon flaw in a never-expanding web of insecurity. Perhaps the best hope for Linux and for fixing this, some experts argue, lies in changing the operating system more than any other controls these machines. But first, they have to change the mind of Linus Torvalds. All right, so a couple of things uh, come to mind. First of all, what does his accent have to do with any of this? I know, right? Why is that even in there? Why is that, that, that infuriates me that that's even in the article. Oh, man, and I, I cut out the, the most frustrating thing. Uh, so hold on. Uh, so li listen to this line. Linus Torvalds, who is a person could be mistaken for any other punchy, or, uh, I'm sorry, paunchy, middle-aged suburban dad who happens to have a curiously large collection of stuffed penguin dolls. He looms over the future of computing much as Bill Gates and the late Steve Jobs loom over its past and present. They talk about his age. They talk about the fact that he lives in a suburban... Irrelevant. Irrelevant. They talk about... I know, I know, I know. They're painting a picture. They, they are... You know why they talk about those things, Noah? Because they're painting a picture of Linus that is arguing... So. Uh, there is a group of security experts who, who see the world as black and white, who, who do not agree. So when you, when you okay, how can, I, how, can I, how can I say this in a way that doesn't sound like I'm just trying to uh, gobble on Linus here? Um, when you run something, when you're at the head of something, and you are the person that has the entire picture in your head, and you have to make all of the decisions for all of the things— Sometimes somebody who's only responsible for one of the things comes to you and tells you why this is the most important thing. And to them, it genuinely is the most important thing in the entire world. But to you, you have the entire picture in your head and you realize that's actually just one of the important things 
and there's other things that must be weighed. And 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 what drives me absolutely crazy, Noah, is it feels like in 2015 the state of dialogue is is that if you argue for the rational and if you argue for the obvious, which is developing an operating system is weighing as secure is is not security is just amongst many things that must be weighed and decided. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you are arguing, when that's your argument that. As as the head of an operating system kernel, you have a lot of decisions and you have to weigh all of them, including uh, a bunch of other demands. When mm-hmm. that is your fundamental argument and you're being called an extremist who is impossible to work with, what that is is a commentary on the state of dialogue we have today. That is absolutely ridiculous because Linus is coming from a complete pragmatic, obvious, mm-hmm. and understandable standpoint that, hey, mm-hmm. I got to weigh priorities. And the security community and this Washington Post article and it's only it's only a few members in the security community and other interest groups are spinning this as Linus being an extremist because that is literally where we are at today in 2015 and it disgusts me. It's it's it is it is it is an attack on Linus in a way. It's basically like well we so here's the here's their argument. You can read the whole article for yourself if you want, but their argument is we need a culture change in Linux. We need a culture change in management. We need a culture change in the way that people are managed. And we need a culture change in the way the conversations happen in the Linux kernel mailing list. We need a culture change in the way security issues are addressed. Culture change. And the problem is we can't ram that culture change through until we get rid of Linus. As if replacing Linus would all of a sudden make every other person involved in Linux all around the world with their multiple different cultures that have been around for 20 plus years. As if all of a sudden changing Linus would make all of those other people different. And it is a short-sighted... Uh, 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 dishonestly motivated uh, uh, a group of people who are, I believe, uh, really, really, completely, completely the greasy or the squeaky wheel here, and and I think it's pretty obvious and understandable Linus's position. And reading this attack piece, and and I guess I am obviously being a little obtuse because I don't even want to go into the other stuff. That has happened. The other uh, claims that have happened this week uh, against Linus Torvalds. I don't even want to go into it. I don't even want to say them. But what has happened this week has been so disgusting and 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 so factless that this, along with that, it honestly feels like there is a concerted effort to go after Linus. And it, it, if you think about, if you go back to some of the conversations we've been having about how he handles, you know, uh, communicating with people. And now uh, some of the things that also have been accused this week, I don't know if you saw them, Noah, and now how he handles security and how critical that is, it, it really is starting to feel like somebody has it out against Linus. Am I crazy? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm not, and I'll, we'll just stick on the, on the current article. But so, um, first of all, everything that Linus said, uh, the quotes that you read, is 100% true. And anyone who's taken a basic course in computer security understands that there are three levels of a use of a computer of a computer. Yeah, actually pause right there just for I don't want to I don't want to interrupt but I uh, this article calls out by the way Linus when they asked him about the you know uh, uh, meltdown of a reactor he said that if you have your if you have your reactor powered by Linux directly connected to the internet and you don't have firewalls and other security provisions in place you got a whole nother set of problems right like the whole question the whole premise assumes that you have some critical piece of infrastructure directly hardwired to a to an internet connection running Linux with no firewall. Anyways, mm-hmm. I just want to I just wanted that's the whole premise of this article, which I think is a good background for what you're well, saying. Well let's talk about let's talk about that. Let's talk about a nuclear reactor, okay? You have three fundamental parts of compute uh, of, of operating a computer. You have security, you have ease of use, and you have, you have functionality. 
And the goal is to set the the set the marble. If you put all three of those mm. out, it would form mm-hmm. a triangle. And the goal is to set the marble in the center of the triangle. And if you any basic computer security class is going to cover this. So let's take the marble and roll it all the way up to security. Here's what's going to happen. There is no point in having this, the nuclear reactor because we can't turn it on because it's so secure. Nobody has the access codes. And if we can get it on, it actually doesn't do anything because nobody uses it. Everyone uses something else because there's no functionality to it. So there are practical problems in trying to set that marble all the way to the security site. So Linus is 100 percent dead on when he says that security isn't everything. We have to have a balance between all three of these things. It doesn't mean that we ignore security. It means that we embrace it. We acknowledge the risks. We take appropriate steps to mitigate the risk. And then we move on with the rest of our lives and don't spend our entire lives paranoid. Second of all. If and this probably touches on something that is deep inside of me and one of the one of the things that got me involved with Linux. And I apologize if I come off a little too uh, abrasive, but every time a, a bunch of a group of people come up and, and create something cool because they're just geeks and they they, they want to do it for the fun of it. And let's face it, Linus Torvalds did not invent Linux because he said, I want to make millions of dollars writing software code. And so I'm going to write this big enterprise thing and it's going to take over the world and then make a bunch of money. That didn't happen. He was a guy he liked. He was a nerd and he liked doing things that he thought were fun and, and innovative and cool. And so he did those things. And then it just so happened that a bunch of companies and a bunch of corporations decided that they could make a buck off of it. And so now they want to use it. So here's my answer to you. If you don't like the direction that Linus Torvalds is taking Linux, go fork your operating system and make a flipping own version of it because we're perfectly happy with the direction it's going. And we're perfectly happy with the leadership that Linus has provided so far. And I think he has knows more about Linux and operating system and leadership uh, of a large open source product in his little finger then most of these people will know if they live yeah. to be a hundred. And and honestly, you know, uh, maybe the maybe these guys uh, could do uh, a fork of their own. And uh, if they did something really interesting and really innovative, you know, it'd be merged yeah. back into the mainline they, kernel. We need a culture change in between their ears. That's where we need the culture change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I it, honestly, if I if I could if I could paint an entire picture and fry a little conspiracy bacon, I would say it almost feels like it's a takeover. It feels like somebody wants to replace the leadership and wants to do a takeover, and this is one of the many excuses. And that we have a couple of links to additional uh, articles that have been about Linus, Linus, however you want to say it, this week in the show notes. Not all of them, though. I honestly can't even bring myself to link you to some of the stories. And that's a first. All right. Well, uh, the next story in the news roundup this week I find to be completely telling. Red Hat and Microsoft are BFFs. Uh, this is, I, I'm sure Noah has been waiting for this story for a week, but Azure is going to become a Red Hat certified cloud and service provider in the next coming months. Red Hat system images will become available to buy on a pay-as-you-go basis through the Azure marketplace. In the meantime, Red Hat cloud access subscribers will be able to provide their own virtual machine images for running Azure. In other words, Noah, this Microsoft and Azure deal is so tightly integrated, you can actually buy licenses from Red Hat through Azure to deploy on your Azure instances. How about that? It'll become one of the first Red Hat certified cloud and services provider in the coming months. That's a huge deal. All uh, As well as supporting both Red Hat software stack on Azure, the companies, are you ready for this? This is the big story. Not that you can run a virtual machine on a Microsoft server running Red Hat. This is the big story. The companies will collaborate in other ways. They will create a co-located support team that has both Azure and Red Hat staff members skilled to help companies with deployments and migrations. The companies will ensure interoperability between Red Hat and Cloud Forms, Azure and System Center Virtual Machine Manager, 
enabling both cloud forms and SCVMM, which is a Microsoft technology, to be used to manage Hyper-V and Azure-based cloud workloads. Red Hat Enterprise Linux will also become a reference platform for .NET on Linux. This is a huge part. This is a really big part. Both Microsoft's executive vice president and Red Hat's executive vice president said that this is one of the deepest partnerships that their companies have ever signed. Microsoft and Red Hat are organizing a team of engineers to get things started. And Red Hat and Microsoft are making .NET on Linux work for enterprise Red Hat Linux. Developers will be able to build .NET applications and deploy them on Red Hat Enterprise Linux, OpenShift, and Red Hat Enterprise Linux Atomic, uh, I'm sorry, Atomic Host, and Red Hat Enterprise Linux OpenStack platforms. Red Hat and Microsoft engineers will be getting working on certifying .NET with Red Hat technologies for enterprise use. Red Hat will ship .NET with certified for Red Hat environments through the Red Hat software collection aimed at developers. And Red Hat will provide direct support for installation, configuration, and environmental issues related to .NET and related technologies. Holy crap. Yeah, I guess that's just one more example of where Windows needs Linux to do its job properly. <laughs> I mean, .NET is open source stuff now. This is a huge deal. And see, everybody's been talking about Red Hat running on Azure, but in my opinion, mm -hmm. the bigger deal is the, the, the collaborative support department between mm -hmm. the two companies. These two, these two companies are establishing a collaborative support department, much like Microsoft and uh, Novell did back in the day. And, and on top of all of that... Uh, they are uh, Red Hat is going to be providing direct support for deploying .NET stuff on Red on Linux. That's awesome. I don't see any way that this isn't a good thing. You know, I I mean, so one is I I probably have too much blatant trust in 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 the Red Hat Corporation to begin with. Um, but I think that it is I think that it it's a real telling sign when we have now reached the day. I mean, if, if you'd have backed up ten years ago and said that Microsoft was going to be relying on Red Hat. Uh, essentially to to uh, you know to to administrate and and to deploy some of their products and to to, to provide the back end for a lot of their products yeah that would have been I think a lot of people would have called you nuts I and here think we are. that is an extremely pro red hat way to look at this I think this is red hat being forced to make a devil or deal with the devil because Ubuntu is kicking their ass on Azure think, huh? and Amazon well, I think that's definitely part of it. I think it's a two-factor thing. I think actually, I think it's a three-factors at play. I definitely think it's the new Microsoft. I think that's more appealing, and they're more willing to work. I hate calling it the new Microsoft. I think it's the Microsoft. You know what? Let's not call them the new Microsoft. Let's call them this. I think it's the more desperate Microsoft, right? Okay, I like that. I'm. It's the I'm more desperate Microsoft that's willing to work with Red Hat. That's factor number one. Factor number two is .NET is now open source, right? And it's legit. It's, like, respectable. It's up on GitHub. It's a decent license, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not like it's, a, it's, not like it's radioactive now for Red Hat to work with it, right? It, it, it's not mm -hmm. going to give them cancer. Uh, so that's good. So from a Red Hat standpoint, that's better. And legitimately, there's, there is an enterprise workload. There is a, there is a very large, specifically, enterprise demand for .NET-based applications, right? It skews enterprise. Mm -hmm. So that is a, there is a big incentive for Red Hat to have support for that. Okay, that's factor number two. Factor number three, undoubtedly, though, is got to be pressure from Canonical. The fact that Azure is already uh, running Ubuntu, the fact that Ubuntu runs great on EC2, the fact that Ubuntu dominates on DigitalOcean, the fact that Ubuntu dominates on Rackspace, right? This has got to mm -hmm. be this has got to be the factor that makes them go, mm. all right, let's call up Sache. Yeah, I, I, I guess I don't know if I agree. Uh, um, 
so part of it is I, I can definitely see it from the Microsoft side because that you're dealing with with a very large, you know, corporate entity um, with corporate needs. And, and that's where Red Hat excels. So I can definitely see your argument there. But I think that, um, you know, when it comes to things like, you know, like DigitalOcean and, and stuff like that, I don't think that Red Hat has ever really tried to compete in that space. Maybe save Fedora and, of course, with their new partnership with um, with the CentOS project. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, Red Hat exists to make money. And they make money by having uh, large enterprise and corporations utilize their backend infrastructure. So it would make sense um, that Red Hat would work with a with another company that has an equal interest in it. Right. Um, But I I, I guess I do. I guess I do take a a pro Red Hat look at it and say that whatever Red Hat touches is likely going to be better. And a part of that comes from the fact that I trust Red Hat not to compromise their integrity um, just to make a buck. And I Mm, definitely don't trust Microsoft. I, I agree. I agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. Yeah, I don't think this is a bad thing. I don't mean to come away sounding like that at all. I think this is a great thing for both companies. So uh, I think I'm really glad to see it. I just, I don't know. You know, sometimes when we when when we when we cover these stories in the news segment, Noah, I can't help but have like a perspective from a few years ago and be like, mm-hmm. I can't believe. Excuse me, I cannot believe I am covering this story. Like. Really? I, this it kind of blows my mind sometimes. And finally, I am so excited to cover this next story. I can finally say this. Ubuntu will be replacing the Software Center in 1604. Oh my god, finally. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, uh, and they're it doing was it. Not, it wasn't that bad. Dude. <laughs> okay all right so uh i i'm kind of jazzed up about 1604 for no reason at all uh it seems to be like it's going to be a great one and here's what i love noah they're replacing it with gnome software center which will be or gnome software which we will be talking about more in today's episode uh and they're going to they're going to develop a series of plugins for it to uh take care of some of the more ubuntu specific things New plugins will be created to support the Software Center's ratings, reviews, and paid app features as a result of the switch. Genius. So just make them as plugins. Now they say, uh, uh, they, they, this is a quote uh, from, well, somebody at Canonical. We are more confident in our ability to add support for Snaps. Snaps. Snaps as well to GNOME Software Center than we are to Ubuntu Software Center. Wrap your head around that, Noah. Canonical's okay. like, hey, let's come up with this new package management system called Snaps. And then, and then, literally, it turns out it's easier to add Snap support to GNOME software than it is to their own their own software center. Their own software center, yeah. Well, hey, you know what? Here's the thing. Let's not just drive by that. Let's not, let's stop and talk about that for a second. Okay. This is a perfect example of what bites you in the rear end when you stray. Oh, oh, like there, a lot of people yes. how did the advantages, you know, of of Ubuntu making their own desktop and their own display server and their own softwares, and the, and all of those true, and there are a lot of benefits that come with it. But this is a huge downside to it. You're in right. That when you have thousands upon thousands of people from a lot of different projects working on one system, and then you go off here in La La Land and make your own system, guess who's responsible for for tying all that stuff in and making sure it works? And and you you just don't have the foresight because you don't have the group of people that this project over here has. Wow, you just nailed it. In fact, if you think about every awesome thing that's happened to Ubuntu in the latest releases and what's going to be happening down the road, the best things, like when you're like, oh my God, they did it. 
is like when they decided, ah, we're not going to do our own thing anymore. We're going to go with upstream. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's just start with. Do you remember? Uh, do you do you remember how you almost crapped your pants when they announced they're going to switch to System D? Mm-hmm. Right. Instead of mm-hmm. and they're going to okay. You know what? Upstart was cool, but we're going to do System D. Uh, what about when they announced that Unity Eight was going to be based on Qt? That was like, oh my God, you're finally going to do it. You're not going to. That's like obvious, right? You're, of course, that's how you're going to do it. Like uh, now and now this. Now they're dropping. Now they're dropping the software center. Now in some respects, you're like, well, yeah. Well, they were first to market. They had to create something. Nobody else had anything. But I think it. it what it shows you, Noah, is. That's a false argument. If they could have somehow had the time, patience, and foresight to work with Upstream, mm-hmm. they could have gotten these projects further along. And I know, yep. I know they tried, and I know that's super easy to say from the outside perspective, but my God, you cannot now look at Mir and go, that's a great idea. How can mm-hmm. you look at, look, at, look at all of this? Going to GNOME Software is obvious. Going to System D is obvious. And there will be a point... Where I think Wayland might be obvious too. We will see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But and, and you know, I, it's a tough position for them because they're they're first there. Also, a couple other things getting dropped. Uh, Bracero, the uh, the disk marine utility, empathy, the messaging program is going to be removed from the default image on Ubuntu sixteen oh four. No, you know the reality is. I mean, I do it because I still back up my optical media that way. But how many people are using optical media these days? Nobody's burning CDs anymore. Not really. You do, dude. I know, I know. I, I, I started with prefacing that. I, 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 I back up all, I buy all my media on DVDs and back them up that way. I'm a very heavy user. I'll be, it'll be one of the first things I install. But for most people, the music, you're either streaming off of your phone or worst case scenario, if you're really being an animal, you're copying it to a USB drive and sticking yeah. it in your car. Woo. And, and you, uh, and you're, you're downloading movies nowadays. Nobody's buying Optica. I just, I, I think that removing Brasero makes total sense. Yeah. It had very little usage. Uh, you know, Although, I'll be honest with you, I like to make videos of my little ones on mm-hmm. them to DVD, and then you can give them out yep. to family members. Yep, but even that oh. is changing. People are people are creating them on their iThingy and uploading it to their iWhatever and then downloading it <laughs> onto their iWhatever on the other <laughs> or side. Or to the YouTubes, or, or to the YouTubes. Yeah, or the YouTube, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. But it just, things are happening in, in, in without ever touching media anymore. So yeah. I think that kind of makes a lot of sense. I guess so. Hey, this ought to make you pretty hot and bothered, Noah. A uh, new version of Batea is at 1.2. <laughs> couple of things are nice in this. The one that I think is nice is it makes Matei actually relevant. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be so mean. GTK3 support across the entire Matei desktop, including GTK3.18 support, which is actually pretty damn respectable. Also, touchpad support is significantly improved and now features multi-touch and natural scrolling. Sorry, everybody. Multi-monitor support has been improved, so the display settings use output names, and the revised UI lets you set a primary monitor. Isn't that very nice? How about that one, everybody? And the power applet now displays model and vent information so you can distinguish between multiple battery-powered devices, improved session management, which now includes a screensaver and inhibitor, like caffeine, which is a, uh, a extension I have to manually install in GNOME 3. And Matei now listens to the uh, org.gnome session manager namespace. And also, they've improved their systemd support. hey Also, a lot of log-standing bugs have been fixed. Like, panel applets are no longer reordered when changing screen resolutions. That's nice. Translations have been updated, uh, so that's really good. And uh, they've dropped support for Win32 and OS X, by the way. What do you think, Noah? So I am... I'm, here's, here's what I think I could do to convince you uh, to, to jump on, on board, is give you a bunch of... Uh, take you into a, a place where your constraints are that you have very old equipment to work with, like P4s, 
and then set something useful up, and then I think you have a whole new appreciation no, for Matei. I actually, I actually totally love Matei. I really do. Oh, okay. I really okay. do. Well, no, when I, I started, I was like, oh. I, 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 it's one of those, it's, uh, you know what I have is I have a pretty strong uh, distaste for something that's really super common uh, in the tech industry and tech community, and that's where you tell somebody to do something that you never actually do yourself. Like, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, you yeah. should have a, you should have yeah. a one, two, three backup. You yes. should have a one, two. You you definitely should use mm-hmm. a different password for every website mm-hmm. you use. Never run as root. Never log mm-hmm. in over SSH's root, right? And then like we all actually do those things, but we don't want to talk about You are do those so things. right about yeah. that. Yeah. You're so right about that. But but I I can safely say uh that oh you I mean you you were here. You saw I had what three three Mate machines running. I mean, when when you're using older hardware, the the resource save uh, from Mate yeah. from uh, from from Unity or or GNOME three is yeah. is incredible. Like yeah. I, I can run a usable desktop on a computer that's ten years old, and I can make it do things, and that's cool. No, my point was my point was is uh, I don't ever actually use it myself. Oh, okay. uh, I install it for okay. people. I recommend it to people. I don't ever actually use it myself. So I feel bad coming on here and being like, yeah. it's great. Yeah, I can't re- I can't really say that I don't use it. Yeah, in fairness, I don't think you have a box that particularly lends itself to 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 the advantages of. Mate, are you talking right? about? Because are you talking about my box on the show, dude? I'm, but I'm complimenting your box. Oh, you're saying you're saying I have a, you're saying I'm I have saying a, that your box is fast. I'm saying that it has a lot of room inside that box. That's not. And a I'm saying that dude. it's not. There are a lot of resources there. I think I don't think that's actually a compliment, but I appreciate that you think I have a fast box. All right, are you ready for the last story in the news docket this week? Uh, yes. Now, KD Bus, it's not actually dead yet, uh, but it is being removed from Fedora, and it's going to be a while before you see it. KD Bus is slick. It's like, uh, you know, if you needed to have a subspace communications channel between your starship and uh, Starfleet Command, that's what KD Bus is between user land and the kernel itself. Fedora developers asked, K, uh, asked to have KD Bus added to Rawhide Kernel this summer at the request of system D developers, they were involved with KD bus development. They're like, hey, let's add it to let's add it to Fedora and see how it goes. So uh, with system D twenty two one, the upstream developers also encouraged Linux distributions to begin shipping KD bus, even though it wasn't really part of the mainline kernel yet. Turned out to be maybe a little bit of overexcitement. Wasn't ready to be recommended yet. The developers have requested the KD bus be removed from Fedora as they want to rethink some of their approach with KDBus. Now, this is, uh, this is actually kind of an important piece of technology. So, turns out this weekend, or uh, just last couple of days this week, was the first ever SystemD conference. Yes! SystemD now has its very own dedicated conference. Uh, for more than two years, they've been working on KDBus. I even asked Lennart about this when we interviewed him uh, a little while ago. Uh, it is a inter-process communication at the com- at the kernel level. It is uh, something that a lot of operating systems have. Well, Windows and OS X. It is a way for, t- literally, for processes and the kernel to communicate between each other. The presence of the IPC, inter-process communication, in the kernel is necessary. For example, now I'm reading a translation here, so I apologize if it sounds a little clunky. Uh, for example, to be al- already to be able to communicate early in the boot process, so you can communicate between processes in the kernel, it's used for tools like Network D. But despite the repeated statements on the need for KDBus, the System D team asked for two asked two weeks ago to get pulled from Fedora. Now, when asked about this at the System D conference, it sounds like it might not really be a big deal. It's kind of a strategic set step back, 
But uh, it's really just because they want to rework a few things to make this possible. And uh, Lenart confirmed they're still continuing to work on it at the SystemD conference this week. And uh, Pottering said there'll be uh, renovation work on some of the issues that, uh, that have been criticized by the Linux kernel community. And then they'll be resubmitting a generic IPZ. Now, why does Chris cover this in the Linux Action Show, Noah? Well, I will tell you why. Because this is sort of the next big, like, welcome to the world of SystemD. This is kind of like the next big um, feature that's coming is uh -huh. this sort of inter-process communication. And it's going to be a part of a, it's going to be the next big thing that has a lot of criticism. A lot of security people are going to criticize it and things like that. So uh, what I have done to kind of prep you for this is the SystemD 2015 conference videos are posted. We have a link to it in the show notes. They're currently posting them right now as we cover this and they're talking about this. If you are interested in this, you can go check it out. We have links in the show notes. It's, it looks, it look, you know what, Noah, they got giant dudes dressed up in bear costumes. So how bad can it be? System D conference, yeah. dude. It's a system D conference. Uh, yeah, you could, you could go for the costumes. There you go. Yeah. That's all right, answer. Noah. That's all the news for this week. It's time to talk about Fedora 23, and man, did I have an interesting experience this week. But first, I want to tell you about our segment sponsors. That's System76 Creators. You might say the very, very best machines out there to run Linux. System76.com Creators Machines Design Born to run Ubuntu Linux. 15.10 shipping with all of their machines right now, but that doesn't matter. I don't, I don't want to talk about that. All I want to talk about is this laptop that somehow I have to have. I don't know how I could ever afford this right now. But if you can, I really, if you're in the market for a laptop, I, man, I encourage you to go check out the Oryx or I'm going to go, we're going to go to system 76. I'm going to find out how you say this or O R Y X. Noah, do you have a, I'm going to guess Oryx. Yeah. Yeah. The Oryx, Oryx bro. Oh man. This looks, they have so many great machines, desktops built right here in the US of A laptops that work with Linux out of the box. When you nuke and pave, you want to put Fedora on there. It's going to work just fine. System76.com. Go get yourself a machine. Built to run Linux, and a thanks to System76 for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. So, let's talk about Fedora 23. Uh, there is a lot of really great stuff that came out, and both Noah and I actually had a chance to run it on our System76 machines. From a high level, what's new in Fedora 23 probably isn't going to rock your socks that much. Uh, it's not going to shock you so much, uh, but it's a lot of really good stuff. GNOME 3.18, which is a great release of GNOME with some really good default applications, including the new calendar application built in, GNOME 3.18. LibreOffice 5, but with some extra special uh, magic, which we're going to talk about more, included right now. It's built right in Fedora 23. It looks really good. Uh, the new uh, GNOME software, which can update your firmware, which is really nice. It means if you have hardware that supports it and your vendor uploads the needed firmware to LVFS, you can update your system firmware through GNOME software. And, and that's a game changer because you'd have to, in the past, you'd have to go get a firmware, go get like a, like a DOS boot environment or something like that, or have a Windows GUI to, to be able to load these firmwares. And now you can do it from GNOME software. That's huge, man. That's huge. All right. Now, no, this next one, though, I don't think you're so hot on. Uh, but it's a feature of GNOME 3.18, and you're going to notice it immediately when you install Fedora 23. The first time you go to copy a file... Uh, the new file copy dialog now is included in like a little, uh, well, it does it just like it does in the Plasma 5 desktop now. It's hidden away in a notification box. The file yes. browser also, you might know it as Nautilus, 
now gives progress feedback when copying or moving large files. A button in the header bar allows you to see the progress at a glance. You know how you might you know how you might notice that? You may notice that if you were using a 120 gig solid state drive to test your distro out, and you may notice if you went to copy a file and you didn't think it copied, so you went to do it again, and then you still didn't <laughs> think did it copied, so you went to do it again. I did the and same thing. You didn't thing. think it copied, so you did it again. Yeah. And then eventually your hard drive filled up and you went, but the file never what copied. The, yeah. Oh, wait, there's five copies. How'd that happen? What and the then heck? you found the stupid uh, mm-hmm. little thing hidden in the. What, just out of curiosity, and not. I know that this is a dicey thing to dissect is is it gnome's fault or is it fedora's fault or is it fedora's fault for choosing gnome or is it gnome's fault but why who thought it was a good idea to take pertinent information about what my system is doing and not only what my system is doing but an action that could only occur based on my input to the computer and then hide the information of what's currently happening inside of a dialog box inside of a button thing who thought that was a good idea i had this exact complete dialogue in my head too and here's what I, I actually came to a little bit of peace. So for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, uh, if you're looking at the uh, video version of LAS right now, we have a Nautilus window up. And if you begin copying a file, like say you hook up a USB thumb drive and you want to move an ISO image around or something like that, when you start copying that file, a, an additional button up in the toolbar shows up that is like a pie chart that represents the transfer progress. And... Um, I even knew this feature was coming because I've been following Gnome's development, and it still got me. It still surprised me. But here's what I came to, No, no, is a little bit of peace about it. You know what happens every time I actually start copying a large file on my desktop? You forget about it, and you hit enter, and it cancels it? No, no. I move it over. I start copying the file, and because I have a multi-windowed environment, because I'm not on some limited single-window mobile environment, I start mm-hmm. browsing the web and using my machine, and I move on. And I, I, mm-hmm. I actually... Nine times out of ten, the copy file like dialog box goes behind another window where I just do something while it's copying. Right. And so the the fact that now I just alt tab over to Nautilus or files mm-hmm. and I just see the copy dialog actually works really well for me. Oh no 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 no. Uh, maybe I should be maybe I should clarify. I'm not upset that they moved the the place that it stores. That's just fine. It's a usability thing. Eventually, I'll, I'll my mind will start to remember it's there and I'll click on it and that's where it'll be. My yeah. concern is that everyone who is not currently using GNOME is going to be totally thrown for a loop because that's not where any place yeah. else, anyone yeah. else puts the... Now here's the Plasma 5 does. But they okay. don't do it there, but they do it down the notification tray. If if there was a button that said, like an option to change, uh, incorporate, di- uh, incorporate file copy dialog into window, that would be amazing. I would love that if I had the option yeah. of going changing that. Yeah. But as a default behavior for my window, my copy stuff to just vanish into the oblivion... I don't like it. A lot of nice things in GNOME 3.18 beside that, though. Uh, one of the things that has changed is the way you connect to network shares is now uh, changed. You go to other locations. Your bookmarks are built in. Your your network shares show up. And then there's just a little connect to server dialog down here at the bottom. Uh, G-Edit and text selection has seen a lot of improvements. Like I mentioned already, GNOME software has seen some nice improvements. But I want to get to something that I think you're going to find interesting, though, that I bet you didn't know about. Because mm. it's it's kind of sneaky in the new Fedora. Can I point out one? Can I point out one thing about the GNOME software manager sir, in yes, case sir. what you're about sir, to say? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I went to search for a piece of software that I thought was installed on my computer, yeah. and it wasn't, and yeah. it just took me in to install it. Yes, yes. Also, unlike the Ubuntu Software Center, when you download a package and then you double click it, it brings up the, the GNOME Software Center and actually installs it correctly and doesn't give you a bunch of errors, which is super nice. Uh, <laughs> but uh, here's the other thing uh, that I think is really cool. By the way, new search in Nautilus is much faster. GNOME three eighteen. 
Uh, that's all really great. Super cool. Also, GNOME Drive integration, really nice. So now you have, if you, if you, when you set it up, when you first install Fedora, it asks you to connect your online accounts, or you can go into GNOME's control center and add your online accounts. You can add to Google Drive now. Very cool if you use Google Drive. But here is the cool thing, Noah, that I don't know if you got a chance to even see because it's kind of a sneaky Fedora feature that probably only people listening to this show are even going to know about unless you follow the blogs of the individual Fedora developers like I do. There is very, very important updates to LibreOffice. LibreOffice, there is a beta. You can install the package. I'll have the information linked in the show notes to bring up full GTK3 support for LibreOffice. Now, the reason why this is a big deal is this new version of LibreOffice, which is based on version 5, means that you're going to have high DPI support for LibreOffice, which is a massive, massive uh -huh. deal. Yeah. Yeah, that's the number one big thing for me. You also now have, and you can see if I open up a file here, I get the GNOME 3 dialog boxes. You also, and this is the big one, get Wayland support now for LibreOffice. Do you get save support? <laughs> yeah, and it saves, yes. Yes, oh, it solves that problem good. too. Yeah, nice callback. Yeah, of course. Uh, but for me also, the other nice thing is high DPI support. Uh, mm. All of this is like a just one uh, package away. I have the link in the show notes. It is a massive update. It's only the very beginnings. High DPI support is early and rough, um, but it's there. And Wayland support is there now for LibreOffice. This is a really big deal. And it's something that well, I'm sure will make it upstream, but it's available today in Fedora 23. Have you tried it, Noah? Did you know about it? No, no, I, I haven't. I, I uh, So my office use is abysmal. I uh, I occasionally edit some documents. I occasionally look over some spreadsheets that my accounting people send me, but really don't really. I mean, I'm I'm not a heavy Office user. You know, I don't spend a lot yeah. of time in it. And thus, that if it, yep. if LibreOffice of any version is installed, it's probably good enough for me. Yeah, that's usually my my approach too. But that's actually going to start to change as we get towards Wayland and things like that. Right? That's yeah, going to yeah. become a oh. And if I had high DPI, uh, if I had a if I had a really high resolution monitor, that would be a godsend. Um, you know, to be able to. So I'm not editing my documents at 500% zoom, you know? I should mention, too, this version of Wayland support under Fedora 23 supports having different DPI settings for different monitors, which has been a massive impediment for me and my XPS 13, because when I hook up an external display, it's pixel doubled, just like, because my XPS display is a 4K, you know, it's a high resolution, high DPI display. And mm -hmm. so the X session and GNOME are pixel doubled. And when you hook up an external monitor, X is so stupid that it just pixel doubles the other monitor. So I, I literally have a 30-inch cinema display that I picked up used years ago mm -hmm. that has like a 1280 by 720 practical resolution. A freaking 30-inch monitor is like basically reduced down to 720p because of the way this works under X. And now yeah. under Fedora 23, if you have the open source driver and you're using Wayland, it'll do uh, DPI independent resolutions for each monitor which is another major Fedora 23 thing because it's here first. And then, and then last but not least, another thing that's really nice in Fedora 23 is uh, they're, they're, they're shipping in some support for something that might be really great long-term. And uh, it's not super sexy, but it's really, really valuable. It's called XDG-App. XDG-App. It's a new technology for packaging desktop applications. It's in the early stages, and it provides a way for software developers to package their application in a way it is usable across multiple distributions with improved security through the use of LXE container technology. And they've integrated support for XDG app into Builder. 
Builder is the new IDE for GNOME. So here's your, here is your IDE developers to create Linux applications, and here's your XDG standard to write it against. The first versions of Supporter in Fedora today. Now, how cool would that be if how cool would that be if you were a developer, especially if you were an inexperienced developer or somebody that like a computer science student that's just kind of getting, you know, involved with some of this stuff and just kind of want to play around? How cool is that? Yeah. And it's a nice it's nice to say, you know, we're including this today in Fedora 23. So in, in theory, if you create an application today, you'll be able to run it down the road, uh, which is which is uh, very nice if you're going to spend your time on that. Uh, so that's some of the new stuff in Fedora 23. There's a lot of other new things depending on your spin and things like that, but that's some of the high-level features I wanted to talk about. Uh, Noah, I was kind of curious about, uh, you know, your impressions of installing it and using it and kind of how things went for you. Yeah, so when I went to install uh, Fedora, I, I, to, part of me is uh, I, can, I can only get so excited about the next release of Fedora because I use it day in and day out on, on one of my main, main, main machines, probably the machine that gets the most use is a Fedora machine for me. And so uh, the amount of changes that occurred in, in six months are not huge. Um, but one thing I really miss uh, about installing Fedora, especially when compared to installing things like Ubuntu, is there is no option just to install it right from the disk. You have to boot into a live environment of sorts uh, to begin the installation. And uh, for whatever reason, it just drives me nuts. And I, I was reminded of of that. Is I did, I did a Fedora installation on three machines two of which were fine. I didn't have any problems with it. One of which was the system 76 machine, but one had a backlight issue. And, uh, hmm, this actually, they've made major changes to the backlight stuff. Yeah. Well, on, on the system 76 machine and on, uh, on a Lenovo ThinkPad, I had no problems at all. It just installed. It was perfect. It, nothing, but I had an HP machine that I was using and the, the backlight was set. The, the screen was on, but the backlight wasn't set on. And so I had to, I had to, to, to set some parameters on Ubuntu, it's extraordinarily easy to do because I can pass those parameters during the install. I can essentially I can go through an install and, and pass that parameter as part of the install. In Fedora, it was a little bit more complicated, and so again, that's one of the one of the big problems that would just be solved if there was a way to just start the installation right from the disk in the in the low graphics mode while I'm while I'm still at well, basically all I'm doing is is drawing a single window, um, rather before you load all the rest of those kernel modules, and then everything kind of gets screwy. Um, so that's one thing that, that kind of bit me. It was not a real hit on Fedora. It just, it's something I wish was different. And of course I'll continue saying it, even if nothing ever changes, really wish they had an LTS. I really wish I wasn't stuck to 12 month support cycles because yeah. there are still machines, my office computer, I will never use Fedora on not because I don't like Fedora, not because it doesn't work, not because it's not perfectly stable enough for a production thing, but because I don't want to, I don't want to be forced to either upgrade or reload every 12 months. Well, uh, hold that thought because uh, I have some. I I feel like with Fedora twenty three, Noah, you need to readjust uh, how you approach upgrades, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. And I, I'm not okay. saying it's your fault. I'm just saying they've they've literally changed the game starting in Fedora twenty three. But uh, uh, before we get to that, uh, I wanted to mention um, a little bit of my experience with installing Fedora. Uh, I gotta say. Um, in my, if if I was gonna do like a meta analysis of my last few uh, Fedora reviews, I would say uh, I am not a big fan of their installer. I know that they reworked it, and I know that th that they were pretty proud of it. But uh, to, truth be told, I thought it was a usability mess. Now, all that said, several releases into it, I now feel like this is the best Linux installer of any distribution out there. Uh, and that's having just installed Ubuntu, 
just having installed uh, SUSE Leap uh, 42.1, installing Andergross all the time, which is a pretty good installer. I effing love the Anaconda installer again, which is great because I used to love the Anaconda installer, uh, and I'm not alone. Uh, J.A. Watson uh, over at ZDNet also says it's his favorite installer. He says, when the live image is booted on an MBR system, it presents options to start Fedora live and troubleshooting. But when on a UEFI system, it also offers the choice to test this media and start Fedora live, which a lot of distributions don't get right. Uh, and then once it boots up, it gives you a nice, huge selection. Do you want to try Fedora or do you want to go right into, into the installation? I think that's really nice. Here's something else that you might not have noticed, though, Noah, because, you know, we're in the U.S. We don't think about this very much. But if you mm -hmm. have an active Internet connection, the Anaconda installer automatically kind of figures out which language it's, it should select for you based on your IP address. Oh. Isn't that kind of nice? Actually, well, so that's nice. And it also could really bite me because I travel a yes, lot. Yes, yes. And it would, I, I would be... I would be beside myself if I put my USB drive, particularly one that I installed before, into my computer and sat down to install Fedora and all of a sudden, you know, it's in Chinese or it's in Japanese or whatever. I, that would that would really throw me for a loop. But you can still change <laughs> it. You can still change it manually, yeah. which is nice. Yeah. Uh, and once the language has been determined, Anaconda puts up what they call the hub screen, where all of the other installation tasks can be, uh, you know, can be chosen from like the time and date, the partitioning, everything you have to do before you can install is in one single freaking screen you have a couple mm -hmm. interesting things that happen here too because you can't proceed until you answer the things that have an exclamation mark and there is a very nice little explanation in orange at the bottom of the installer that says hey bro you can't move on until you answer all of the problems that have this exclamation mark it's good stuff uh and if you go in there you change stuff it's it's ready to go and one of the things i really like about it if from this hub screen is you can get to whichever parts of the installer dialogue you need to to deal with but you're not forced to plod through the stuff that you don't have to deal with. Uh, also, the highlighted warning across the bottom of the window is nice. Anaconda will not let you start the, start the installation until the required information has been provided. So that, that bar is displayed. And then, if you want to, man, you can get crazy. Uh, before I say what you can get crazy with, because also i gotta give them, I got to give them uh, uh, props for, they also, just straight up, and it's not that great, but just straight up, they have the best... Time zone location selector. I don't know why the Linux distributions have to be so fancy about this, but all of these maps, like SUSE, where you have to zoom in like an animal, or Ubuntu, where it constantly is selecting the wrong region and the map is too small, this is the one installer. It just takes up the whole effing screen. It's so the you, world on your screen, and you just select the region. You do it with a mouse, huh? Yeah, well, bro. I've always done it by typing the, the city. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. And then... Well, and then what I really, really like about it is the way they do the partitioning, which is the thing, the thing I've hated the most for the longest. But now that I've done it for a few times, I appreciate you can just select a drive and let it just have at your drive like an animal and just totally rewrite the partition table and have at it. Or you can go like all like crazy, like sci mad scientist on it. And you can be really specific about how it's set up. If you want to use LVM, if you want to use encryption. It is, I think, one of the best disk partition layout tools as well. It's done really, really well. Uh, and when you've completed the changes, you click done, and then Anaconda starts installation. Before it starts installation, it gives you a review of any major changes it's going to make to your hard drive. So before you delete your data, you can say, no, don't do that. And then, after you're done with all of that, you say, start installation. And then it just starts asking you, a lot of installers do this now. 
it starts asking you for like username and root password and it has a fairly decent password complexity checking all of those things while it installs to the hard drive if mm-hmm. i could give the anaconda installer one piece of criticism drop those super tacky ads you know where you talk about getting the dvds those little banner ads think mm-hmm. about it nobody clicks them you can't click them you're in, you're doing an installation nobody yeah. acts on them nobody remembers what you say there all they do is don't match the rest of your scheme. They mm. are they are a they are the legacy product of a bygone era where the installation took an hour and you're flop you're swapping discs and you might as well use that time to to sell something to the user. And by the way, I will say this, it was the worst thing about commercial installers because they took it from Windows. It's a it's a waste. Get rid of that stupid banner ad. It looks like a web banner ad. Get rid of that stupid banner ad at the bottom of your installer, and you got one of the best, cleanest installa- installers for Linux. And you know the other thing is, I would bet you not a they, they had zero difference in, in in any kind of engagement at all by dropping those banners. I bet you Noah, those banners get them nothing in return other than just looking tacky. I will give you that you have you have definitely sold me on the installer because there, there were some things that I, I haven't been so so on I, I'm I'm not you know they, they used to have the PowerPoint presentations that would go straight through from slide one to slide 10 then when you're at slide 10 you were done the presentation was over and then they went to that Prezi thing that like you have different areas and you zoom in on the different areas and never really appealed to me and that's kind of how I feel about the Anaconda installer I feel like instead of just going through one two steps one through ten when we get to ten we're done it's like we take this is the stuff that has to get done immediately so we ask it first and then i'll start doing this in the background while you tackle this that and the other and i i start to lose my mental flow of what's actually happening yeah a little bit yeah and so yeah and so you've kind of helped me buy into this but i i guess i vehemently disagree with the idea that we should get rid of those uh, the ads at the bottom one is really um, yeah and let me let me explain why before you call me totally crazy one is uh i would stare at almost anything over a blank screen uh, it's particularly while I'm doing an install. The Here's only- a crazy suggestion. Here's a crazy suggestion. How about output of the packages being installed, like SUSE does? You can see what the nice thing about SUSE is you can read their stupid, yeah. crappy release notes that always have typos, or you can tab over after the UI response because it's a super laggy UI, and you can watch mm-hmm. the packages being installed. They they didn't. I, I haven't done this uh, on 23, but you used to be able to hit escape, and it would take you to what the, the packages were doing. Does well, that yeah. work? Yeah. You know what? I didn't try that either. You're right. I there used I to be a way to do that. Yeah. I didn't either because frankly, I don't really. I, I don't care that much. Care anymore? Get it done. Let me know when it's done. That's all I care about. Yeah, it's like yeah. the oven. I don't really want to watch yeah. the the you know thing big. But so one is it's it's a shiny thing. It's something shiny to look at. And second of all, uh, it I, there is something to be said about getting me excited for the things I get to try after I get done with the operating system. What out? What hmm. applications are there? What's the new things that are going to be there? I'm not saying they shouldn't tweak them, maybe a little bit, but it is kind of cool. If, for instance, if you put some of the stuff in there, like about LibreOffice and this is the newest version, and this is what you can do, and here are the new features, I think that'd be kind of cool, actually. I hear you. That's not. I guess getting jazzed up about potential apps isn't bad. They look really crappy and tacky right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like you said, it doesn't really match the. Uh, it doesn't really match. Essentially, you know what it is. You know what it is. Is it looks like a lot of intention and thought went into everything else. And then they have these boilerplate uh, little banner ads that somebody made up a while ago that they just throw in there because, well, every installer is supposed to have these. Yeah. You know what they could do to make both of us happy? Just put a little X and then you can just, and then that's the end of it. They want to make me happy. Put a put an ad in there for the Linux Action Show. All right. Yeah, so yeah, now yeah. I want to talk about why I think that Fedora 23 is literally a game changer and you ought to get on board and you need to stop talking about your lawn. 
Uh, it's, it's DNF. DNF is the, is the package manager. And starting with Fedora 23, and I've already experienced it. I'm here. It's real. Doing system okay. upgrades is fundamentally different. DNF system upgrade is cool, man. Uh, one important change to the shift of DNF for system upgrades. Fedora's old fed-up tool for upgrading from one release to another is gone. Operating system upgrades are now handled by DNF. Fedora's new package management tool replaced by Yum back in Fedora 22. We covered that in our Fedora 22 review. This, get ready for this, Noah, is why I love mm -hmm. it. It's essentially a risk-free upgrade. Now, I say essentially because that's not true at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. It uses SystemD's support for offline system updates and can roll them back if necessary. So if you're upgrading from one version of Fedora to another... You use this new DNF tool. It does all the downloads. I have all the commands in the show notes. Boy, it looks all funky. All zoomed up right now. Essentially, what you do is you do a DNF update. You install uh, this plugin upgrade system if you needed it for certain versions. And then you say, all right, DNF, do a system upgrade and get ready for release version. And you tell the next re release version. And then you do a DNF system upgrade. It's literally three commands. DNF system upgrade, reboot. And then what it does is it downloads all of the packages gets them all ready in your package cache, and then, and I, I, this happens today on Arch already, uh, then it, 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 it shuts down the, the core system. Mm -hmm. And this is why I say it's, great, it's good to have console access to your droplet if you're using Fedora. It shuts down your core system and then begins updating every single package. It, but before it does the upgrades, because it's DNF, it also does transaction tests. So it literally tests the installation of every single package first before it installs it. Mm. Then once it verifies that package installed correctly, it deploys it. And then you got systemd rollbacks. So uh, no joke, I decided let's put this to the test. I have had, uh, since our last Fedora review, I have had a Fedora 22 server running on DigitalOcean. And I've had it doing simple things here and there as I needed. And I didn't really get a chance to incorporate it into our review last time. I just didn't mm -hmm. feel like I had enough time with it for a server. This time, however, I've been running that Fedora 22 droplet since our Fedora 22 review till our review today. And as part of my review process, I had a chance to try this new upgrade tool. And I got to tell you, Noah, super, super, super impressed. You can update your system to the new release, and I'm telling you, I now the key to this, I think, is I, it's a pretty simple system. It does like three things only, and I was able to go from from twenty two to Fedora twenty three in probably a minute and thirty seconds. Wow! Yeah. Wow. Mm hmm. And I and then it clicked with me because I th I, I realized so so this is how they're doing it. They are, you know, because when you and I talk, we're like, well, I could use Fedora as a server, but I can't stand having to uh, reload the OS every six months or nine months or whatever. I mean, there are other reasons, but yeah. Yeah, there's lots. One. Yeah. But for me, this is like, this was like a way to get a nice, stable, well-supported operating system. We're going to talk about some other things that it does for the server release uh, and be able to do pretty smooth upgrades. So here's my idea as sort of a test for this show. I'm going to keep this Fedora 23 system running. And I'm going to see how long, and I'm, I don't know what I'm going to have it do yet, but I'll probably have it do some basic tasks. I'm going to see how long I can do DNF upgrades. So each time we do a review, I will try to do an upgrade there as a server to see if it is reasonable to use Fedora as a server using this new DNF upgrade process. 
And I suspect it actually might be. And I, I, I said this on the pre-show, Noah, and it is absolutely true. Uh, I have literally been using Debian with its app get dist upgrade since the late 90s because right. it is the smoothest system to upgrade when I have to deploy systems that I expect to have to be in for 10 plus years. Debian right. is the obvious choice. It is that good. It uh, When I use DNF, it's even better. Uh, it is the best system upgrade tool I have ever seen. How fast it went, the transi- the transaction check, the system D rollback capabilities. It is mm-hmm. the smoothest fastest upgrade with two, three commands I have ever seen on a Linux distribution. And I watched that and I went, that's how they're doing it. Mm -hmm. That's how they're going to try to get me to use Fedora as a server, but also update to each release is through this system. And I think the only way it probably realistically works is if you don't have your box doing a hundred different things. But if you have your box just doing a few things, it is a really slick process. You think I'm crazy? No, I don't think you're crazy, but I think that you might be off just a little bit in what the intention of Red Hat was. At least if I were working for Red Hat, what I would be intending is for you to get comfortable with DNF and and we can test out test the waters out in Fedora and you try them on your desktop or maybe maybe a uh, maybe a little test server that you have just for the purpose of of testing Fedora out and then we take the things that are successful and we roll those into Red Hat Enterprise. And if you want to use if you want those advantages of DNF um, but you want it with the stability of a server that you're going to leave in production for 10 plus years. I would expect you to use them sure. on, yeah. on on yeah, on CentOS yeah. or Red Hat. Yeah. And I, I guess I just at this point I, I have never I have never really been sold that Fedora is is a really compelling product for right. a server. I Me use too. it all Me the too. time on my desktop, and I yeah. like it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I just wouldn't want it powering any, I agree. any series backend. I agree. And and what you just said sounds completely reasonable if they didn't call it Fedora Server and Fedora Cloud. If yeah, you're going to well, call it Fedora Server, yeah. Fedora Cloud, then it better be a freaking yeah, server, right? Absolutely. And so yeah, that, absolutely. I agree, though. That if you if you want to install a server and you don't want to you don't want to have to worry about upgrades, you don't want to have to worry about new versions of systemd and, and mm-hmm. major versions of the Linux kernel and Apache and Nginx, CentOS is an obvious choice. It's obvious. Yeah. But if you actually like me want a current system, but don't necessarily want rolling, I think it actually is compelling. So what? So that's where, and you you lost me right up. You had me right up until the very last two words. Is what is the per, like if if Fedora Server was rolling, I would totally see it. Hundred percent makes sense. Really, really. Using, yeah, sure. Because then you're using an enterprise grade uh, company, their product, and they're just it, it's 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 bleeding edge though. And so you're right at the end. But what really is the purpose of having something that that isn't rolling? So it's not really bleeding edge. But at the uh, it's not really stable either because it's not really stuck. I totally, totally, fundamentally, absolutely disagree because okay. uh, in the enterprise space, in the server space especially, something that releases every six months or every nine months or every year even mm-hmm. is might as well be rolling. It might as well be okay. daily in the enterprise. As far as servers and the enterprise and, and, fair. and massive infrastructure is concerned – Yearly might as well be rolling. And so what you get with Fedora is super fresh, but it's not just that. You get every single release, you get new features that are, uh, they're, they're pretty smart. Uh, they're, they're pretty tight. Like, uh, let's talk about, for just a second here, Cockpit. If you install yes. Fedora yes. Server, you get freaking Cockpit. And this is, if I was a Linux admin 10 years ago, this would be a game changer for me. And I'm going to show you guys right now on the show. I on my DigitalOcean, this is, uh, this is connected to my DigitalOcean droplet. And on my DigitalOcean droplet, I have the Cloud Edition installed, but it just takes one command to install Cockpit. And so Cockpit 
is Red Hat's web admin interface to your virtual server. So I just logged in right here and you have my system snapshot of my CPU usage, my memory usage, the network traffic, and the disk IO. All right, so there's the high, there's like, there's a nice high level, how's your server doing? Plus I can restart it. Guys, this comes with Fedora server. This is a, this is, this is Webman done right. This is Webman that is created by the platform provider that is secured, that deploys things and sets up things in the way that Red Hat and Fedora thinks is a good way to do it, which is generally secure and often lean towards the freedom way of things, of, of doing things. So this is, you log in on Cockpit, you get this one main heads-up display. Then you can go in and you can manage your services right here in Cockpit. This is in my DigitalOcean droplet. But cooler than that, Noah, and Cockpit is growing. I mean, the container management is so amazing. So, mm -hmm. uh, so here I am. I'm in container management. I get to see how much the combined CPU usage and memory usage of my different Docker containers is. And uh, Noah, give me the name of an open source project. Just give me the name of a of like of a server side project that you know you like to use. Uh, open EMR. All right, Open EMR. So we'll type in Open, and I've never tried to deploy that Open EMR into the uh, Docker search. I type in search, and boom, there is one, two, three, four different Docker images of Open EMR I could immediately deploy on my Fedora server. Isn't that, or, you know, let's try another one, like, uh, I, I don't know, um, uh, let's try Mumble, right? People like to deploy a Mumble server. Uh, or Smoke Ping. Or there's a lot of things you might want to deploy. Well, here it is right here. Here's a bunch of different ones. Uh, Mumble Server. Uh, a, a complete open source Mumble Server. You click it, you say download. Cockpit then goes out, retrieves the absolute latest version from the Docker repository, and installs that container on your machine. You can check the logs, you can check the storage, all through Cockpit. Now, here's what's great about this, you guys, is this isn't like your web UIs of yesteryear. This is something created by Red Hat that deploys and configures things in a secure, recommended way. And what this fundamentally does is it closes the gap that makes so many people deploy systems that are not secure and properly protected online. So many breaches we hear about from TalkTalk and Target and Lowe's, and the list goes on. I could sit here for 10 minutes and I can name the companies that have been breached just from my personal companies that I use alone, not because they use Linux, not because Linus doesn't respect security experts, but because they haven't installed an Apache update or because they haven't properly configured the debug setting on their web application or because mm -hmm. they didn't properly secure their virtual machine. It is negligence. It is malpractice is what is causing all of these breaches we talk about in the news. All of these cybersecurity issues are malpractice of system administration. And things like Cockpit and Juju and other tools out there Make deploying these things in a standardized, secure way actually accessible to everybody else. And the fact this is installed by default in Fedora Server, honestly, freaks me out a little bit. Because years ago, I would have perverted Webmin or PHP My Admin mm -hmm. or any mm -hmm. other tool I could possibly get my hands on to just help me out a little bit and give me a GUI to figure out some of the things I want to do. And now I have something that's actually created by the very people who make the distro I might want to deploy on my server. And from this interface, I can manage CentOS systems and Red Hat systems and Ubuntu systems and Arch Linux systems and Fedora systems. And I've installed it on the cloud edition of Fedora simply by installing DNF install and it's done. I just do DNF install cockpit and it's all set up and then system CTL, system CTL start cockpit and it's running. And within 
45 seconds, I am now doing web administration of a Fedora's cloud installation up on a DigitalOcean droplet, and within another 30 seconds, I had deployed the MB multimedia server to that DigitalOcean droplet server and had it set up and running with all of the firewall IP forwarding rules already perfectly defined for me by cockpit. Noah. Do you think that this has the uh, the potential um, to handicap or crutch uh, new system administrators? No, I don't think so. I don't. I don't. I think it. I think it makes Linux and some of these services more accessible to more people. And I think, unlike the the automated systems of the '90s and early 2000s, this is actually deploying things in a way that is actually maintainable, secure, and manageable. So it's actually the right approach. And I think also it is a, a very fascinating usability leg up over things like Windows and especially the Mac OS server. And do, uh, what do you think about the the concept that we have taken um, a very powerful machine and uh, and and given people very easy to use tools to administrate and deploy that machine? You know, I, I have to wonder, does that start does, you know, Linux, there's no not really an argument to be made against Linux in the server sphere and hasn't been for quite some time. But I wonder if if stuff like this, the ability that. I, I think my mother could set up a Linux server if it was if I told her that all she really had to do was go visit a particular web page, right? I mean, it becomes extraordinarily easy for anyone to do that. Yeah. Uh, so you remove the barrier to entry. Yeah, I suppose. But that's kind of like saying, is it a bad thing to have more applications available on Linux? Uh, it, you know, like here's a couple yeah. of things now you can do. Uh, so there is this role CTL application that allows you to manage a Fedora server now. So you install Fedora server, and then you can have it deploy uh, roles. A featured server role is an installable component of Fedora server that provides a well-integrated service on top of the Fedora server platform. So they are like prepared roles that simplify deployment and management. They don't like muck up your whole system, and you don't have to use them if you don't want to. But if you want to, there are roles ready for Fedora server today that make it a domain server, a domain controller. To do Active Directory-like authentication using free IPA for an entire network of systems. Now, mm. now Noah, you could tell me, well, gosh, you know, being able to say roll CTL and make it a domain controller makes it way more easier for a lot of sysadmins, and it's going to sort of water down the field. But then yeah. at the same time, I can tell you quite legitimately, I get that question every single day. I just, I just answered that question. I tried to answer that question not very well Thursday on TechSnap. Which somebody mm -hmm. just emailed in again and said, "How do I use Linux to be a domain controller?" And every yeah. every time I have a little bit of different answer. Now I can install. Now I can say, "Go install Fedora Server." They have a role set up for that. You run that role; it automatically is ready to be a Windows domain controller. Um, database server. People mm -hmm. commonly go into Linux because they need a database server for their web application. They now have a rapidly deployed instance of PostgreSQL, PostgreSQL, SQL database server, just using RollKit. Um, and that's all on top of cockpit, which allows you to manage all of this. Mm -hmm. And so the, the missing component for Fedora has always been, well, okay, I'll use cockpit, I'll use these roles, but then how do I actually continue to use the next version of Fedora? If this right. DNF upgrade process continues to work as smooth as it was from going from 22 to 23, I think they've answered that question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll have to, I'll have to look, you know, revisit my, my, uh, my preconceived notions on using Fedora as a server, but I still think I'm left with, I still think I'm left with, I will just wait for this stuff to make it into 
um, Rel and then of course CentOS yeah, and yeah, use it yeah. that way for a server uh, for a service sphere. And part of that is just because you and I approach Linux somewhat differently in that I will always take the more stable thing, even if it means I limit my ability to use uh, a certain software. Like there are certain things I just can't use, and I accept that because they're not available for the distro yet. Um, and uh, and on the other on the other hand, uh, this week you're dealing with with some issues, not unsolvable issues, but issues related to using a slightly newer distro, right? So uh, those mm-hmm, are mm-hmm. there's not it's not there's one right way or wrong way, but I yeah. think there are advantages and disadvantages to both, and so. I um, think what I'm saying is uh, if this ends up making it to CentOS and Reddit Enterprise Linux, this is going to oh, be a serious, legitimate way okay. to upgrade your future Enterprise Linux and CentOS installations. And you can play with it today. And if you want things like MB and Plex, some of the latest packages and you want on a server, you know, it's available today. But also on the desktop, you know, we've talked a lot about the server stuff. On the desktop, uh, it's got the latest version of Wayland that you can get your hands on today. And uh, they have an optional Wayland session you can enable and play with. That are hopeful that by maybe even twenty four, developers think may, it might be default. Uh, and and by the way, this new experimental session on the desktop does bring in that high the mixed high DPI display, which is huge to have each monitor have its own DPI display settings. Also, don't forget this LibreOffice has the GTK three work. You got Firefox now also working under Wayland with this GNOME three eighteen with all with the new calendar apps and all that good stuff. I mean, this really is. Um, I think Fedora 23 here is really, it is a new version of Fedora. It is the long-term realization of the Fedora.next initiative. In fact, Matthew Miller, the Fedora project leader, even says that. He says, two years ago, the Fedora project started the Fedora.next initiative, which helped us look at the Fedora project and what we needed to accomplish in the next 10 years. He thinks that this release of Fedora highlights the importance and the success of this initiative including the delivery of these three distinct additions. you got cloud, server, and workstation, and infrastructure improvements to help our community continue Fedora's role as a leader within the open source operating system world. And you know what? I think it's a damn good release. And I, I start to recognize a trend here where I feel like I could install Fedora 23 and pretty confidently go to Fedora 24. The proof will be in the pudding. I will keep that droplet running. I will figure out maybe maybe it'll be my MB server. Maybe it'll do something else long term. And I will so something of some relevance that if it, something goes wrong, it actually matters to me. And then I will continue to try to update it. My goal, I doubt this is possible, but my goal is to try to get that sucker to Fedora 30. Okay. We'll see Fedora well, Project. Think, so if we were talking about actual server releases, I think that would be totally legitimate. Because if you think about that, well, what does that amount to in in years? That's you know that's if they're doing you know six six month releases, um, that's not very long at all for a yeah. server. No, I, I agree. It should be doable. It should be yeah. doable. Yeah, yeah, should be. Now we'll see. But uh, we got more. Uh, we got more reviews linked in the show notes. Noah, any uh, closing thoughts on the Fedora review for you? Did you think it was an overall good release? I think it's absolutely awesome. I think that we have uh, that Fedora kind of hits for me the same thing that that uh, that Ubuntu fifteen. Uh, 1510 did, which is mm. that it's not, there's, I don't think there's anything like mind chatter. Well, cockpit kind of, but as far as a desktop distro, there's nothing that's like mind chattering. I, I have to have, but I, I think it's a good solid release. I still followed, even though we were doing a review this week, I still followed my, my tried and true method of, I never, ever install or upgrade Fedora on the very first uh, two or three days. It's out. I wait a little bit before I push it onto my main machine. Um, not that anything necessarily bit me or that would have bit me. Um, it's just something I tend to follow. 
Uh, and and I would I would still probably recommend that if you just wait a week and then and then install it. I loved it. I ran it in VM. I ran it on on physical hardware. It is a great release. The performance is great. Uh, it is absolutely my number two now. It is my number two distro. I if, because honestly, what I want is a great GNOME desktop implementation. I don't want to wait six months to get a six month old version of GNOME. I want the version of GNOME that shipped a couple of weeks ago. That's what Fedora twenty three has got. A DNF is here. It's legit. It honestly makes my issues of using an RPM distro go away. I think it's got one of the best upgrade processes. It's very fast. I like it. And when you combine RPM Fusion, which is a must-have, with Fedora, it is a very, very usable desktop operating system. Without RPM Fusion, without a few additional repos, I don't necessarily think that, but it gets very close. I think Fedora 23 is one of their best releases built on top of 22, which really, 22 was so good, you'd really have to screw it up to get it wrong, and they didn't. Mm -hmm. They built on top of a bunch of good stuff. They kept some of the changes and influences minimal. It just is a great presentation of GNOME with some of the greatest technologies in Linux, and they've moved some of the other things forward that we all appreciate, like Wayland and GTK3 support in LibreOffice and, and general Wayland support across the board, and last but not least, moving that upgrade process and that upgrade cycle to something that might actually be approachable. And wouldn't that be one of the greatest takeaways is if we could no longer fear and no longer be scared of the system upgrade. Wouldn't that be an amazing accomplishment? And I'm going to, we'll see, I'll keep this installation and then we will go towards Fedora 24, which should have a very clean update process and see how it works out. We'd love to hear your thoughts, though. Go to linuxactionshow.reddit.com or go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and send in your thoughts and your review on Fedora 23. And if you think there's something we missed or something we got wrong, let us know. linuxactionshow.reddit.com and look for episode 390 of the Linux Action Show. All right, that's the Linux Action Show's look at Fedora 23. And that brings us to the end of this week's show. Before we get out of here, though, we got some emails. People went over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. They chose the Linux Action Show from the dropdown. And they sent us some emails like Jeff P. here. He says, I set up an Arch Linux machine on a box with a RAID 5 array and an HDMI output with optical audio out. This system is now running GNOME 3, Kodi, Transmission Daemon, and Samba with SickRage. It is the ultimate home theater PC. My question is, how do you guys keep a rolling distro like Arch up to date? Do I need to remember to run Pac-Man SYYU every week? Is there something that will show up as a desktop notification or better, something that will be sent as a notification to Kodi? Is it dangerous to configure sudo so that Pac-Man does not need a password and then run Pac-Man SS or SYYU as a cron job? Oh, my favorite, run it as a cron job. <laughs> uh, I definitely, definitely, definitely have an answer to this, Noah, but I'm curious if you have an answer before I get into it. Uh, I have an answer. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, my, answer, my answer would be only update when you have a problem. And other than that, be very, very afraid of Arch. Oh, oh! I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, but I would. I, I would. It, w when it comes to servers, uh, uh, unless there is, unless there becomes, a, you know, a huge security concern or stuff like that, I do tend to update um, when there are problems yeah. or when there are things I'm trying yeah. to fix. So, not just every day jumping in there and updating. So here's here is how Chris does this, and uh, I've got um, I've got two Arch Media servers that get used very extensively every single day. Ironically, not by me. And uh, the thing is, both of them run Arch. And I did that because the Arch user repository is a thing, and I wanted, I wanted to Plex Pass, and I wanted the latest version. I wanted the latest version of BitTorrent Sync. I wanted the latest version of Sync thing, and I wanted to install it once, and I wanted to get those updates forever. So I went with Arch. 
and it works and it has worked really, 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 really well. And it has worked so well that uh, I can stand here now almost two years into it and tell you that I only update them about once every four months, five months. And sometimes it's a real pain in the ass because there's like new key signatures I have to accept or like I have to do a sim link or something like that. And it takes me like a good 35 seconds. And, you know, that's a that's a big pain in my butt. And so that 35 seconds that I have to spend every four months and never have to reload my operating system and always have the absolute latest version of the applications that actually make a difference for my family and friends is a huge penalty, and I totally recommend you avoid it. <laughs> no, it's been great. It really has been pretty great. I don't bother with keeping up to date that often. The more, I, really, if you can, if you want to, SSH into it and keep it up to date from time to time and have fun with it. If you don't want to play with that, if you don't want to enjoy that, then do it every four or five months like I do and just plan to set five minutes aside and, and just troubleshoot it. It's not really a big deal. And I, I think the key thing I'll take away from this is keep it simple. Uh, yeah. Don't yes. have to do yes. a whole bunch of stuff and you'll be fine. Yep. Yeah. And really, and you know what? And also look at what the applications are running. If you're really just running Cody, you know, maybe consider running on an LTS release. You know, if you're just, if you're running something that's not going to update that often, like Cody that only updates every few releases, you know, Consider maybe putting that on a more stable Linux because you're not getting a big benefit running that on a rolling release. So use a rolling release where it's appropriate. Don't just use rolling because it's a thing. So think about that as well. And I don't think Cody is enough of a justification. And I don't necessarily think something directly hooked up to your TV is a good use of Arch. I would probably go with more of an LTS because that's an appliance in my opinion. You agree, Noah? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are two things come to mind, actually. One is... There is some legitimacy, um, and this was really downplayed now that I think about it, the beginning of my IT career, and so I guess I've kind of gone to the other extreme to embrace it as much as possible so that other people don't feel ashamed as I did when I got into it, but there is nothing wrong with setting up a server for the purpose of playing with it. Um, and so if that's the case, if you have a server that sits in your house and you just want to play with it, that might be a great use of, of Arch. And if you did have, you know, because you're going to get the newest version of the packages and stuff like that, that's really fun. Rotten Corpse, actually, producer Rotten Corpse does something very interesting with a lot of his family and friends. And that is that he sets up his own repo for Arch, put, takes everything else out, sets Arch up the way he wants it, and then gives it to them. And so the only time they get updates are when he up when he puts those updates into mm. his repo so it is he is it, like you were saying it's an appliance box. Well, he has an appliance box, except he has control over those appliance boxes. So it's not that they're never updated. It's just that they're only updated when he says so, and only with the packages. Can that my he family wants subscribe to, to those repos too? That's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's a really. I mean I don't know that I'd really want the overhead of maintaining my own repo, but it's a really cool idea, and I think that uh, you can get a lot of uh, you know a lot of traction out of that. So Jacob G writes in and he asks about Evernote alternatives. He says, hey, guys, I just started listening to your show and I love it. I got interested in Linux around 2000, but it's like a lot of fun to listen to people who live and breathe this stuff all the time. Anyway, I just listened to your last episode and you mentioned a few possible open source alternatives to Evernote. Have you all tried out paperwork? You can get it here and he gives us a link. It's a free and open source project that looks pretty great, but I haven't tried it myself. I've installed a, I've installed a private version of MediaWiki. 
which I much prefer because of the simplicity of markup and interlinking between articles. But this looks oh, pretty cool too. Interesting. Thanks, Jacob. Yeah, yeah so I thought that was kind of paperwork dot rocks. That's a great URL, you guys. <laughs> Noah, uh, Noah, this is Noah. Can you can you get somebody at, at uh, it works to just like set this up for us and 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 we can try it for a while. And you guys, you know, just sure. write it off as a business thing because this is, looks amazing. Sure. But neither of us have time with this upcoming that is, trip. That is true. That is true. And I'm totally going to do that. I'm going to send an email right now <laughs> oh and I'm God, just going to say I'm going to sign somebody to it. Yeah. I love it. All yeah. right. So uh, Jacob G writes in with. Uh, oh wait, no, that was when you just read. Sorry, that was the Evernote alternative. By the way, paperwork rocks. You guys can find links to that in the show notes. Bill W writes in. With the plainest of note-taking, he says, I have a note-taking solution that I have been using for decades, and it's free, as in freedom. This is following up on an email we read last week on the show. He says, I can take it with me anywhere, and it's extremely difficult for hackers to take control of. It's called, get ready for this, Noah, paper. Yeah, it's paper, and it's actually been around for hundreds of years. All you need is a pen and a pencil, and it works. It's lightweight, it's portable, it's secure deletion, and it's uh, easy as fire to delete it. I will also mention, by the way, it has fantastic battery life. That's been my observation. Uh, it, he says, I hope this feature is an app pick because paper has been a huge help in writing down quick things to remember. <laughs> paper, Noah, paper. Yeah. You know what? Hmm, I'm surprised we didn't think it, of that. Here's, uh, uh, so... Um, if you go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click on the contact link and choose Jupiter Broadcasting from the drop-down menu, you too can be a part of the show and send in feedback to us. And in almost surefire way, to for, for if I read your email and I start laughing and then call my wife over to read it, that's almost a surefire way to make sure it's going to get in the yeah, show no if kidding, it's like right? extremely funny. Yeah, yeah. you know what's ridiculous is I actually, uh, field notes, I'm a big fan of field notes, which are little uh, portable, um, yeah, like they fit in your back pocket if you're a dude or they probably fit very nicely in your purse if you're a lady. Field notes are the best little portable notebooks ever and I have a whole pack of them. And this is actually where I, I actually write down a lot of my show thoughts. The other thing I use a lot of is whatever OS mobile I'm using, whatever mobile OS I'm using, I just, hey, take a note. Hey, you know, Shlomo, take a note. And uh, it uh, puts it in there for me. So, yeah, no, that's but that is like, yeah, by the way, paper is a great Evernote alternative and also pretty easy to thumb through as well. So and uh, in Linux Unplugged this weekend, I think it was episode 117. I also talked about an alternative QT powered markdown powered note-taking application in episode 117 of Linux Unplugged. You know, I don't know if any of you out there are NPR fans, and I don't know if this is necessarily a good thing or not, but NPR has launched earbud.fm, which is a tool for, this is in their words, discovering great podcasts. I have never come on the show and been like, hey, go vote, for, go vote at the podcast awards. Hey, go submit us to this thing. But you know what? I don't know. This time I just felt like if you are an NPR listener and you enjoy some of their shows, I have a link in the show notes. They have just a simple Google Doc form. They just want to know about good podcasts they're going to be featuring. And yeah, I know Google Play is doing podcasts now. Everybody's doing podcasts. But if you like NPR and you want to hear maybe see us get featured, I have a link in the show notes. Also, uh, I can't believe I'm about to say this because it's November, but we're starting to look towards January for the Linux Action Show. And one of the things we want to really be able to do is uh, coverage of events next year for 2016. And uh, we could really use your help over at patreon.com slash today. One of the first events is towards the end of January at scale. And uh, right now, the way the Jupiter Broadcasting finances are, because Linux Fest follows so closely after scale, we can't cover both events. And I think that's a bit of a shame. I would love the world's largest Linux podcast to cover one of the largest Linux events. And wouldn't it be cool if that was made possible? by one of the world's largest Linux audiences. 
Patreon.com slash today. We've got 570 backers. I don't know the number yet. Noah and I were talking about in the pre-show. I was going to come on here and I was going to say, hey, if we get to 600 backers, we'll go to scale. Hoorah. And then Noah said, hey, you could get all those people at $3 a month and it basically isn't going to make any difference. I don't know what the number is, but if you love what we do and you want us to go even more and if you want us to double down on even more in 2016, I would ask for your support at patreon.com slash today. Eventually, I'll try to get the numbers together and tell you how many people I need to be able to say we can go to scale. We can do some of these other events that no one I were talking about in the pre-show and we can do Linux Fest and we can do the, all these things and we can continue to produce awesome content in between all of those things. I'll get you that number. Uh, I, I can't I can't tell you, though, if 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 this show wasn't a thing and I wasn't a listener, or I, mean, I mean, I wasn't a host and I was just like, you know, a Linux user and I didn't have the show to listen to. Knowing what I know now about going to these conferences, I would be so desperate for an outlet to go there and try to capture the story of these Linux events. These are the defining moments of our time in the year for Linux, and it fundamentally sets the tone for how our community interacts. And, it, and on top of that, it goes against the narrative that the Washington Post or the BSD community or whatever interest group wants to tell you that the Linux users constantly fight and are hostile and nothing ever gets done it fundamentally eradicates that narrative and it shows you how we collaborate and work together person to person to create some of the best software in the world. And the idea that the Linux Action Show won't be there to cover one of the biggest events of that really, really bothers me. And I don't know what the number is yet, but if you haven't supported the network yet and you're thinking about it, patreon.com slash today, help us get there by bringing that number up from 570. I know baseline, 600 is going to be barely enough, and I want to take it even farther than that. And I want both Noah and I to be there at scale. I love to have it be a big event. If you could support us, patreon.com slash today. We really appreciate it. Noah, is there anywhere you'd like to send people throughout the week to find more of what you're up to? I have been, I have been uh, playfully playing with people on Twitter, at Kernalytics. Um, I have, ever since Facebook, Facebook did uh, the world a favor by uh, totally cocking up their mobile app and requiring those stupid chat heads. And because of that, I've just basically kind of jumped off of Facebook and jumped on to Twitter. Dude, you've been, um, you've been rocking the Twitter with some great pictures, well, I got, too. I, I, got an, I got another Twitter app that I've been playing with. Uh, you've played with Hot Todd, I'm sure. Mm, no, um, I haven't, actually. And, no, it's... it. it really? I, I, love this tw- I love this tweet, though. Learning stop, drop, and roll in elementary, in elementary school led me to believe that catching, fire, catching on fire would be a much more frequent problem in life. <laughs> well, think about that. Think about that. How many yes. times, like every year, they went yeah. over it, and it's yeah. like, well, is this going to be the year that I'm going to catch on fire? And I'm 29 years old, and I've never caught on fire, and I, I feel a little misled. I love so, it. That's a great tweet. Yeah. That's one of the better tweets of the week. At Colonel Linux, you can follow me at Chris LES, and if you want to follow the network, at Jupiter Signal for announcements. And remember, just going to mention it, we're going to be live on Thursday and Friday next week. Uh, JupiterBroadcasting.com slash calendar for some of that. Just check JBLive.tv if you just want a random, you know, just take a buckshot and see what happens. And then also Meetup.com slash JupiterBroadcasting if you're in the Denver area and would like to come down and drink beer with Noah and I. Meetup.com slash JupiterBroadcasting. And last but not least, if you need more Linux Action Show, if you need the best source of Linux news, if you want to give us a project, if you want to give us a news story or insights, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. That's the secret sauce behind this show that not only is one of the best Linux news outlets on the web, but also is how you get the best stuff in front of us. You can also email us linuxactionshow at jupiterbroadcasting.com and catch us live at jblive.tv. 
All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning to episode 390 of the Linux Action Show, and we'll see you right back here next week. Okay, this okay, is here. No, no. Sorry, let me tell you. This is why I'm torn on the Fedora reviews. So, uh, every kind of distro now, I kind of have a different review approach. So, when I reviewed Ubuntu 15.10, I kept it pretty stock, and I used pretty much the default Unity installation. I removed a couple of things from the launcher, but that's it, like one thing. When I do Fedora, I customize the shit out of it. I install RPM Fusion, I change themes, I install Chrome, I, 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 I basically pretend like Arch has just disappeared off the planet, and now I'm switching to Fedora as my main distro. Oh my god, I have to jump in, can I survive? And I, I over a period of a week, slowly customize the Fedora installation to match how I would use it. And I feel I think like- that's the only honest way to do it. I feel like it's a pretty genuine way to review a distro because yes. it's like, can you make this work for you? You know? Yes. Uh, however, this week, I'll be honest with you, I didn't do that very much because like, uh, I have I have gotten feedback that says like, well, you shouldn't do that. It's not, it's not representative of what Fedora's actually like to use. And so this week that's, I kind that's... of customized it a little bit, but but then to do like the review, I just installed a VM and I just Here, said, well, the, the, I'll have the review the VM. Yeah, but here's the problem I have with that. Then, then by the here's what here's what my review would sound like if I didn't customize Fedora at all. Well, I can install VLC because it's not in the repo and it doesn't come installed. Well, I, like right. I can't. I, like there are actually that's how the, I the feel list too. Would be endless, huh? But that's that's that's, yeah. a, that's a horrible review. Fedora is perfectly capable of installing VLC. In fact, it's like two commands. Yeah. Exactly. Like, uh, I wanted Chrome, right? Well, okay, mm -hmm. if I go by the defaults, I can't install Chrome. That's right. If That's right. I do two commands, I now have Chrome. That's a hor I think whoever gave whoever or the group of people that that give are, that are, are are setting those mandates are are beyond ridiculous. But and, isn't and, it so here isn't it weird how like some feedback like will get in your head and then mm -hmm. you're like and then you're like, well, maybe I should do it that way. Maybe well, absolutely. I absolutely. And and but but what I'm saying is uh you know, here's what would be unfair. It would be unfair for you to install three different packages that weren't part of Fedora, and you modified the repo to make it installed, then force it to do this, and then change something, and then it installs, and then as a result of that, you have some sort of other system error, and then everyone says, oh, that is because you installed XYZ package, and then you say, well, that's Fedora's fault. That, I think, would be an unfair review of Fedora. Yeah, okay, but, I follow that. Yeah, I follow but, that. But to say that you can't make any, you have to use the system as default, I, I, if you think about it, the most perfect distro in the world is not going to have anything installed except the minimum things to get you going so that you can customize it the way you want it because yeah. nobody really sits i mean you need a right. web browser and you need an email client right. you right. need something to play music file manager those things but beyond that the less stuff that i have pre-installed the less stuff i have to remove and install the stuff i wanted to begin with yeah that I, I i universally agree with that statement in every single absolute scenario for years except except in the case of antigros there's nothing okay. they install by default that I wouldn't install myself anyways. Oh, okay. Well, and that just happens to be the, the case, though. I know, but doesn't that mean that's the mecha distribution, dude? Um, no, because that just appeals to you. I, for example, I know. don't particularly care for Chrome. But I know, but that's my but that's my point. It's like my mecha distribution. It's oh, like your mecha distribution. I, it's the promise, yeah, yeah, it's the promise land yeah. for me, yeah. Okay, yeah. So for your particular use case, yes. Yeah, it is the promise land. Did you play with Cockpit? Yes. Yeah, I have. I <laughs> so we'll, cool. I figure we'll do a little demo today on the show. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't trust Fedora upgrades. 
No offense. Well, no I think that I think it should change. I think that should maybe we'll see because you know they have a whole new upgrade process starting with. Let DNF me. Let now. me. I'll tell you. I'll make you a deal. I will upgrade some of my Fedora boxes when you try own cloud again. Heyo. Because I've been burned by Fedora no, I upgrades you. more often I, than you've been burned by own cloud. I, I'm just, I, I I'm think done. the only way you know the only way I think upgrades really are safe, especially uh -huh. uh, especially like uh, on an RPM distro, is if that uh -huh. thing does like three or four things tops. Seriously, like if it yeah, does okay, more yeah, than yeah, like yeah. three or four things, I don't think it's worth it. Well, and honestly, honestly, now that I think when you say that, that rings so true with me, not just Fedora in general, but just servers in general. I mean, how often, yeah. how often do you ever have a server that's doing more than three or four things and you make some major change to that server, be it upgrade or even just even just some sort of major change and you don't end up having to troubleshoot something of those other, you know, those. that's why you try and compartmentalize some of that. Containers. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, containers, containers or virtualization. Or, yeah, yeah, or virtualization. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Cockpit is neat, man. It's uh, so cool. I was wondering but, if you had a chance to play with it. Well, I did, but here, so the, the the thing I can't get past is, do I really want I, a web UI to control my server just feels like something that is not, it just doesn't jive with me for some reason. I can't really put my finger on it. Is it because it's an unnecessary, unneeded, uh, you know, uh, service that potentially poses a security risk? Is it because I think that, hmm. is it because I, I've been trained by a bunch of old school farts that every time I asked a question, they told me to go grab a man page and now I feel it necessary to make life difficult for the next generation because it was made difficult for me. I don't know why I, I, I am just like, my. it just doesn't jive with me for some reason. And I don't know why, because it's such a cool thing. And it seems like it's a good idea on principle, on paper. I think I think when you're dealing with virtual machines and a lot of droplets or VPSs mm -hmm. and things like that, then I think it starts to make more sense. You know what? Completely unrelated, other than it's related a little bit, is um, do you know how many effing times this week, dude? I have typed in Fedora 32. Yeah, it, it is really weird. I, I literally do it every single time I go to type Fedora 23. Well, it turns out when you are writing a review of like notes and when you're looking at other things and you're looking up guides and tutorials and repo information, you type Fedora mm -hmm. 23 a million times in a week. And I, I type Fedora yeah. 32 a million times in a week. It's so mm -hmm. frustrating. But you yeah, know, I, you're, so here's what, here's where your logic applies. If you were talking about Webman, mm -hmm. uh, I would be like, or PHP my admin or something like that. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, yeah, no, you're totally right. You're absolutely right. There mm -hmm. is something about Cockpit and the later generation, like Juju, and the later generation mm -hmm. of web management applications that for some reason it feels inherently safer to me. And I think if you take a second and you step back and you think, as a new Linux user, when you were first coming into yes. Linux and you were looking for GUI tools, how freaking amazing is it that some of the best tools like Cockpit and Juju mm -hmm. are made by the platform vendor? Like back in the day, my best bet was Webmin, so I could mm -hmm. configure NFS or Samba mounts or something like that. And that would be like, how good is Webmin going to be supported? It's hit and miss, right? And mm -hmm. and Webmin is a security risk. Now, freaking Fedora themselves or Red Hat themselves are making Cockpit, right? But it's I, like I, I, I in, in perfect honesty, though, I think that's part of what bothers me about it. And and I admit that this is so mean of me to say, but <clears throat> I just, I guess deep down inside of me, I feel like. I never had the advantage of having a web page that I could visit to see my system stats and stuff like that. I had to learn how to go to individual logs and 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 cap them out and copy them and and I feel the need to inflict pain on everyone else that wants to do it. And, I, and that's yeah. horrible. But I think I think deep down inside of me, if I'm being perfectly honest, I think that's what it is. Do you is think I, that's a competitive like thing? Is that a competitive huh? thing? 
I just, I guess I just feel like, well, I, so here, let me, I guess if I rephrase that a little bit, I feel like the people, you're going to have people now that are going to be administrating servers that really don't, that don't necessarily understand the underpinnings of, of what it is they're doing because they have a handicapped crutch. And, but when I say that and when I think about that, honestly, that just lowers the barrier to entry, which means that we would have wider adoption, which means that Linux would take off further. So really, I should be embracing that. And so I, I it's it's like the, I have this internal battle and blood is being shed on both sides. I suppose I see it that way, because when I look at it, I think, oh, this is saving me time, not, oh, this is doing something I don't know how to do. So mm -hmm. I do look at it. Okay, so I, I do look at it sort of with a, hey, look at this tool that's actually doing it right, that isn't making a muck of my config files, and is created by the platform vendor, and is doing something I already know how to do, but doing it faster for me. But that's because you started... Uh, right. Matt, yeah, so what about, the, what, about the, what about the guy who starts tomorrow, and when somebody asks him to go send him this log or that log, goes, well, I don't know how to do that. I just I go to the website, and it tells me that this is what the computer is doing. Two thoughts. So. Two thoughts. Two thoughts. First thought about that is that is hopefully where where companies like AltaSpeed and, mm -hmm. and, and like my old business fit in mm -hmm. is in a way, really... It allows them to manage all of that. Like, what traditionally in your clients where you have somebody who's the like local savvy IT person, they can now be the person creating the container. But as soon as they get to something as hard as grepping a log file, now they got to call you. And to be honest, you'd rather get the call for grepping a log file than installing the base OS. That's my first point. Absolutely. Se second yep. point that I will make is, uh, according to the CEO of TalkTalk, Talk, the number one plague facing the UK and the rest of the world is cyber terrorism and cyber threats and cyber hacks. It is cyber attacks, attacks, right? Well, TalkTalk Talk was hacked by a 15-year-old kid who did a SQL injection against their CMS, right? Mm -hmm. What will happen to TalkTalk, Talk, what happened to T-Mobile, what happened to Lowe's, what happened to Target, what happened to all of these companies was negligence and misconfiguration and failure to do updates. Right. All of them. Millions. Yep. And you know what, dude? Like, I... My freaking my freaking information has been compromised like five freaking times this year. I just yeah. just got another compromise this week. This oh, week. And I haven't even I honestly, I haven't even opened the letter from the last compromise yet. Seriously. Like this is how often it's happening to me now. And mm -hmm. here's the thing. It's because negligence, because it is it is them neglecting their systems. And so if if something like Juju or Puppet or uh, or Cockpit uh -huh. makes managing these things and deploying these things in a way that is more secure, easier to update, and 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 more along the lines of the platform vendor's recommended setups, i.e. SE Linux is enabled, uh, mm -hmm. you know, firewalls turned on by default, things that, you know, Fedora or Red Hat would recommend by default, then for God's sakes, maybe we'll have less negligence in deployment of these things and management of these things. And on top of that, let, let these... Um, you know, these DevOps, SysOps guys who are apparently super administrators deploy their little droplets and deploy their little containers and deploy their virtual machines and deploy their management systems and let them have their little uh, project atomics and all of these things, right? Because as soon as they have to go grab a log file, they're given AltaSpeed a call and you're still making money. That is a, that is a very well-articulated, excellent point. However, the one thing that stands out to me yeah. that I have to take exception with is the, is the whole uh, Bruce Schneier qu quote is that, uh, you know, if you think that technology can solve your security problems and you don't understand the problems and you don't understand the technology, uh, 
I, 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 I follow you up to a point, but I think, I, I think, I think we part ways when we get to a point of, um, we think that uh, tools like this can uh, can solve security problems or or even automate the the idea of security. I think the real problem with security, at least, is 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 the human factor, right? I kind of think that's what I'm hoping these systems like uh, like cockpit and whatnot sort of. I don't promote. Think, well, I don't think they can. I don't think they can remove the human risk and like the human failure aspect and things like that, and like compromising the humans. But if you can make so uh, <clears throat> for the review purposes, mm-hmm. I deployed uh, an MB server using. So I have I have a Fedora droplet. I'm going to repeat some of this in the show. I have a Fedora droplet that I, just for shits and giggles, it was running Fedora 22, and I just did an upgrade to Fedora 23 because it doesn't have uh-huh. a lot running on it. Yeah. And then once I did that, I was like, well, hmm, do 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 DNF install cockpit. And then I was like, system CTL enable cockpit, right? All just off the top of my head. And then I went and reviewed on the Fedora wiki to make sure that's what you're supposed to do. That was <laughs> literally what you were supposed to do. But I was just seeing if I could figure it out, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, w- w- so within um, 45 seconds, I went to Fedora 23. I got mm-hmm. cockpit installed. And then when I logged into cockpit, within another 45 seconds after that, I was deploying an MB Docker mm-hmm. container on that system. And I was just like, geez, this is... And you know what I what I, what I like about it, right? Is uh, more and more these really easy kind of like just do this and then just do this and then just do uh-huh. this uh, are all the way the Fedora project wants me to do them, and I have pretty good faith in all of the major projects' assessment of what the default should be. So yep. for Fedora, like uh, 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 I can't remember now exactly what the defaults were for the MB uh, uh, droplet. Or, I'm sorry, uh, container, but uh, it um, it automatically like set up just the base minimum uh, f- uh, for- firewall forwarding rules, but like doesn't expose the whole thing to the internet and things like that. Like it's really reasonable. Like it's mm-hmm. it's exactly mm-hmm. what I would set it to, uh, and it was all you know literally within five minutes. I had all that stuff set up and rocking, mm-hmm. and I'm like, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I and I because I, I had the same thought too. I was like, you know. There was a time, actually, it's still really today. Today, if I was going to go set up a media server, a, a permanent media server for the rover, I would mm-hmm. probably buy a NUC, assemble the NUC, install mm-hmm. a base arch operating system. Mm-hmm. Get, it would. I would literally. I, I would think about it as like, well, that's what I'm going to spend Saturday doing, right? Yeah. Yep. This was five minutes of work, and I had a Fedora 23 server running MB, pretty secure within a Docker container. So it's even actually more, really, it's more isolated and better set up than I would have set it up myself. Yeah. Uh, all managed through the web. And I'm just like, damn. You know, like, I'm thinking about those two things. And yeah. I'm like, I think today we're not quite there where I'm going to use that yet. Mm-hmm. I think I would still spend my entire Saturday setting up a rig. And I'm not going to lie, there are some aspects to that that I enjoy. Uh, but my availability and my likelihood to do that is becoming less and less and less. And yep. so th- the fact that... Where they're going with cockpit and Fedora and these mm-hmm. roles, and they have role CTL, and the and and the packages make a lot of sense. They have meta packages now that make a lot of sense. It is a huge time saver. And honestly, uh, it, the upgrade, you know, it for the server went well enough that 
I would say I might be willing to run a Fedora server if I I'm gonna so I have this DigitalOcean droplet and I'm gonna run it now. So it was running Fedora 22. I deployed it with Fedora 22 and Fedora 22 released. And uh, I've been just because I because uh, I realized that we needed to do a server review, but we never got I never got around to actually reviewing the f server component of Fedora 22. But you uh -huh. know the droplet's super cheap, and I thought, well, I'll keep it for Fedora 23, which is exactly what happened. And so I've got this Fedora server here, and I've just upgraded from 22 to 23, and they've just standardized the way system upgrades are going to work officially. And I'm thinking, wouldn't it be interesting to see? how far I can take this droplet. And I actually have, I don't know exactly what I want it to do yet, but have it actually do something that matters, <clears throat> but not super critical, and see how far I can take this droplet for how long running Fedora. Can I take it up to Fedora 26? Can I take it up to Fedora 30? How far will it go? Because see, one of the things we're gonna talk about today is they've standardized the DNF upgrade process for Fedora 23, uh, starting with Fedora 22 really, but going to Fedora 23. Uh, it's standardized now, and it, it. I ran through an early version of it today, and coming from somebody who, who has been using Debian since '98, '99, and one of the reasons I started using it was because apt-get dist upgrade was a thing. I mean, that was one of the reasons I started using it was because dist upgrade was an actual thing, and I, I just went through it on Fedora, and I'm telling you that the DNF system upgrade was better done than anything apt could have ever hoped for. Wow. Wow. That's saying something. I mean, I, like, I looked at that and I went, I would be willing to do that. I'm willing to bet on being able to do that again next year. You know, as much as I like Fedora, and as, as happy as I am to be sitting here ready to do a Fedora review, because for the whole week, I, got, I, I had no choice. It was my showbound duty to use Fedora on every computer... <laughs> That I own for the whole. I figured yeah. that was my duty: is to wipe my laptop, my desktop, my work. Every machine had to run Fedora this week, and nothing could possibly make me happier. That said, I'm still not going to use Fedora uh, for a server. Yeah, and well, that's probably. And that you know what? And that probably is. Yeah, I'm not in, saying in, it's time I, to switch yet. And, yeah, and I guess, I'm, I guess, if I say any of this in the review, you should make that point because I'm not actually saying it's time to go. I'm not saying everybody switch over. I'm saying, I think I get it. And I want to, and oh God, I hope I make this point again. I, I think I get it. I think what they're doing is they're saying, yeah, we're going to do, you know, we're going to do a new version all the time. We're going to constantly do new versions, uh, but we're going to make the process of going between each version pretty painless. Um, it's pretty much a, it's pretty much a risk-free upgrade. <laughs> it's really ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. We're going to talk more about it in the show, but it's, it's, it's essentially a risk-free upgrade.